Hello, everyone, and welcome to a jam-packed episode of the Let's Rutten.com Track Talk podcast. There is so much to discuss today. It's Wednesday, May 1st. The Casta Semenya versus IAF decision is in, and the IAF has prevailed. The London Marathon was fantastic on Sunday. Elliot Kipchoge and Brigid Kozgai, your winners there. We've got the Peyton Jordan meet at Stanford on Thursday. The Diamond League season opener in Doha on Friday. There is just so much to get to. And there was the Penn Relays and Drake Relays last week. I think we have to begin, though, with Casta Semenya. This is a monumental decision, not just for track and field, but for all of sports. Weldon Johnson and Robert Johnson, co-founders, join me right now. I'm Jonathan Galt, staff writer for Let's Run.com. Weldon, where do you stand on the Semenya news? John, you're missing out the big discussion of the podcast. Robert will be discussing circumcision. We'll also be having the deleted thread of the week. This is what the people want to hear. Today's podcast is sponsored by Floyd's of Leadville. We have a new bonus. It's May 1st. It's May Day. And if you go to floydsofleadville.com and you haven't gotten the great certified CBD products they have, we have a new code, 15% off now. Use code RUN2019 on Floyd's. Thank you, Floyd's. And also, at the end of the podcast, in our sponsored segment by Hoka, we'll be discussing the new Carbon X project. Still figuring this out, but it will be a world record attempt by Jim Walmsley at 100K and Tyler Andrews. Guys, you guys haven't heard, but I talked to Mike McManus at Hoka at the end. You guys know very little about this, but if I told you someone was going to try to break the 50 mile and the 100K world record in the same race, what would you say? Honestly, I don't even know if you want to know my honest opinion because I don't think it would make much of a difference to me. But I'm not. I have not been in as soaked into the ultra running world as you guys have been after your podcast last week. I, I don't think that's shocking to me at all. Like it'd be like breaking the 30k in the in the marathon world record. So I would sort of expect it. It's 12 more miles though. I th- I think it could end in disaster. So we'll talk about that at the end as well. Thanks to Hoka for sponsoring our entire exploration of the ultra marathon. You guys are interested in what are the best ultra marathons? Check that out on Let's Run as well. But Semenya, we have to talk about Semenya, right? This is the decision. This is the news of the day. Casta Semenya and the other women who have disorders of sexual differences of sexual development that have resulted in them having normal than regular female testosterone levels. That is what's preventing them from competing now in the 400 through the mile. It's a really big piece of news. Robert, what do you think? Well, before I tell you what I think, I want to get your guys... We should have made predictions on this last week. What were you expecting to happen? When I woke up this morning at like 6.15 with the baby crying, I picked. It, well, I looked at my phone to see what time it was, and I saw a text. I think it was from Weldon. It might have been from John. Weldon, I think it was. He said, Castor Semenya, but that's all I could see. I didn't see I didn't see the next post. I was like, but by the time it was too early, I'm like, then after I read that she had lost, I was like, well, what was I expecting? John, were you expecting a win for Semenya or the IAAF? I was expecting a win for Semenya because I was speaking to someone in London earlier this week and essentially this is a time in our culture, the global culture, where we're trying to move towards inclusivity and away from discrimination and the the CAS admitted in its decision that there is discrimination in place in this case, but they felt it was necessary to preserve the integrity of women's sport. So I was expecting the CAS to rule in Semenya's favor. We know there was some problems with the IAF's case and some of the data that they presented, but ultimately they ruled with the IAF, which I do think is the correct decision. I think you, you nailed it. Well, then what were you expecting? 
Yeah, I was expecting Semenya to win as well. I was pretty surprised when I saw the decision. Maybe not shocked, but I think the more I thought about it last night, and I emailed Ross Tucker, the sports scientist from South Africa, who I think essentially testified on behalf of Athletic South Africa. And there was huge problems with the IWF study. Like they wanted a retraction from the study. So right now, the full ruling isn't out. There's only a two-page summary. So we don't know all the details. But in talking to Ross, he pointed out all these problems with the study. In general, Ross supports the idea of there being testosterone limits and that sort of stuff. But I thought, well, if you have problems with the study and you're going to discriminate against this athlete, essentially, like how can they rule against her? The one sort of interesting tidpoint that has come out is it was confirmed that Semenya chromosomally is XY. So she's definitely intersex. And so I think I wonder if some of the science there came down on the IWF side. To me, I guess I was thinking we're in such a PC world. I was afraid that, that the IWF would lose. I knew there was problems with the science, but some of I did think to myself, but she's intersex. Like these people have to understand that this eventually, when you, ta- when you apply this through the transgender stuff, it's, it's going to end this. I mean, it's going to really damage women's sports. So I guess I am happy that the decision is as it is. I, I kind of view it as the op- opposite of the op- Oscar Pistorius case when he was running with the blades and, and, and that. I feel like the science, they got that decision wrong because the science wasn't there. Here, the science may not have been there very well. Or Ross Tucker has problems with the science, but they got the decision right in, in, in the grand scheme of things. It's really interesting. It only applies to these certain events. I mean, I can go off on that or talk about that. It's just been an interesting development over the last, I mean, it all broke, started how many years ago, Walden, in Berlin? I'm doing the math. 12 years ago in Berlin. 10 years ago. I'm not doing the math. Yeah, 10 years ago in Berlin. 2009, Castor Semenya just burst on the scene. Interesting, that was our first world championships, non-cross country that we went to. We were sort of tipped off about her and nobody knew who she was. And I'll never forget the first time I saw her come through the mix zone. I mean, her voice was so deep. And at the time, like it was just other journalists were sort of shocked. And because now, like, I think everyone associates Castor. She's a woman. She identifies as a woman. But at the time, it was just, just I don't know, like a different era. And I mean, I, I, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I mean, that's one of the things. This is, by the way, not that we want to pat ourselves on the back too much, but this is kind of a story we help bring to the world. We were tipped off about it. Weldon interviewed her in the mix zone after the first or second round of the 800. No one else bothered to interview her. And our video that's on YouTube, it almost has 900,000 views. The most watched video on YouTube ended up being on Good Morning America and et cetera. But to me, Weldon, I remember talking to you from, I, I wasn't at, at those worlds in Berlin, but you said that like there was a French woman, a journalist pointing at Castor and laughing. And we've moved as a society, we've moved way past that. The transgender stuff is way much more accepted. But I was afraid that acceptance, which is great in, in the everyday life, was going to overcloud the athleticism of it, the athletic importance of this decision. And thankfully, by a two to one decision, it's some some sanity has come through. You know, if we realize that someone is XY, she is the definition of intersex. She's a, a wonderful woman. That's how she identifies. I would identify that way. Let's be honest. I mean, if you don't have a penis, most people are going to identify as a woman. Well, we don't need to go there, Robert. Well, it's pretty basic. I mean, let's just be honest about that, Weldon. It's not basic, Robert. Let's be honest about that. It is basic, Nothing about John. this case is basic. What part about basic is if you didn't have a penis, most people would, would identify as a, as a woman. 
That part is pretty basic. I think that applies to 99.99% of the people. But that the whole thing is that we're in the 0.001 part, Robert. This is not a neat, no, you know, cut and dry issue. I'm about- saying, I, I, anyways, please, just we don't need to argue about that. I'm saying how far we've come as a society. Uh, I'm saying that she's now used in Nike ads as an inspiration. And I think she has been inspired. I admire Caster a great deal. I actually love it how she flexes now. And what I, what I would encourage her to do is get on the plane right now and go to Doha because you have one week to start ob- obeying this this ruling. She can run the Doha Diamond League meet on Friday with no testosterone blockers and try to just knock out that world record. But after that, she's going to have some interesting decisions. One of the things in the Ross Tucker email that he sent us this morning, very long, and thank you, Ross, for sending that to us. By the way, Ross has a new Science of Sports podcast that I haven't listened to. It just came out this week. If you want to listen to it, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. One of the things he said in these decisions, and he enjoyed the Ambie Burfoot piece that we had on Let's Run. He said, yeah, for basically for every argument in this caster thing, there's another argument in the opposite direction. He felt like one argument that there wasn't an opposite direction was, he's like, look at the harm this would do. He's like, a lot of doctors have been told not to, they think it's, they don't should not be giving anti-testosterone drugs to someone like Semenya. And some medical association has said doctors should not follow this. So they're like, you know, it could be harmful to Semenya to obey this order. I just don't agree with that logic at all. She doesn't have to run the 800 meters. She can run professionally. She can run in men's races if she wants to professionally in the 800 meters or try to, and she won't be very good. She can run recreationally in the 800 meters, or she can just run the 5,000. And she just beat an Olympian, Dominique Scott, in the 5,000 last week. She doesn't have to take any testosterone medication uh, in, in that event. So... Yes, maybe to make a lot of money, she needs to do these drugs. But hey, I don't feel like anyone has a right to be a professional athlete. You know, as John and I were talking before the show, John's like, look, I don't have the genetics to make me a professional athlete. I don't, it's not unfair. It's just the way it is. And based on her XY chromosomes, Kaiser Semenya, in my opinion, and in the court's decision, doesn't have the genetics to be a professional 100 meter runner um, in the women's category. If she wants to run the open category, so be it. The men's category so is the open category so often known. So it's been to me, it's a, it's a really, I don't know, you know, 10 years ago, people were calling her a he. I'm sure there's some people still doing that. To me, that's despicable. It's a complex case, but at least temporarily, I think it's the right decision. Now, if you, the, the science and moving forward, you know, I mean, what are we going to do is pretty interesting. But another thing that's interesting, I'd like to get David Epstein on, involved in this is how it, they've only sort of found any the evidence between the 800 and 400 in the mile. And I think that has something to do with just the nature of the 800 event mainly. I mean, the 800 is always fascinating to me as a coach. You see a lot of people in the 800 who are really good in high school, whether it's Michael Granville or somebody like that, they don't improve at all really in college. And I, I think there's some reason there's gotta be something about the physiology of the event that sort of makes these intersex people really good at it. Yeah. I, I think that's an interesting point, Robert. I don't know if I totally agree with that because Michael Granville, you're just taking one ex- one example. Like Donovan Brazier was one of the fastest high school runners ever, and he's gone on to be a fantastic professional. But I do think it is strange that we do seem to see overrepresentation of athletes with DSD, of intersex athletes in the 800 specifically, because we know Semenya, we know Francine Saba. I think there are a few other athletes from history that we all sort of suspect may have had, may have been intersex. And we just don't see that as much in the other events, which I think is, 
I don't know what the exact reasoning for it. Is it because the 800 is a specific event that is tailored to someone with much higher testosterone? Or is it just because we haven't seen enough athletes taking up events like the high jump or pole vault who have these DSDs? Okay, guys. My question is, what do you think Caster should do? Should she stay in the sport and keep... Well, I guess she could stay in the sport, compete open, not lower her testosterone and just keep running the 800. She could lower her testosterone and run in the women's division as the 800. Or she could, in addition, yeah, she could stay in the sport, run the 800. As a man? Open. And then still run in the women's division for the 5,000 meters. So do you guys think she should try to move up in distance, essentially, for, for women's sport? To, to to me, there's there's three options. One, lead the sport. Two, yeah, to compete as the man in the 800, which to me is absurd. She's not going to do that. Or three, stay in the sport and, and do the 5,000. Um, I think two or three are good options. I mean, she she can be a global icon. She can speak for women's rights and transgender. I mean, she's not transgender, but sort of oppress minority groups' rights for the rest of her life and. and do that but i think she loves competing so if i was her i would try to do the the 5000 i think that's the option robert one other option you missed was she can compete in the 800 as a woman but she needs to take the medication to lower her levels and it does seem like she may have done this at some point in the past because remember in 2015 before the iaf ruling was before the hyperandrogenism rules were suspended she was running but slowly she went out in the semi-finals of the first round at worlds in the 82015 and may have been taking testosterone lowering medication at that time if i were her i would move up to the 5000 see how good i can get at that and give it a shot because once you start lowering your regular your levels i don't really know what's going to happen to her body we don't know how she's good she's going to be in the 800 but certainly not as good as she is right now I would give the 5,000 a shot, see how good you can get at that, and then maybe reassess from there. The weird thing is when she was on those drugs, she wasn't like as terrible. It was only one or two years where she was really terrible. Some people thought it was based on how far off she was from taking the drugs. I actually thought of a fourth option, and this is what I might be doing to her, just defiantly not take the medication and run an 800 and dare them to ban her. Or no, ban take, her. Or maybe take the medication and then get off it right before Worlds and see how close they're going to test her. It would just be really emphatic, like, okay, do you, are you going to go through with this? I mean, are, can, like, how quickly can they do the test? That is actually interesting, calling the IAF's bluff on that. Because I, it's weird. I, I wanted her to lose the case, but now I'm like, go cast her. I'm always for the underdog. But I, I would like to to um, read part of the email we got from Ross Tucker. And he was talking about how it's really hard for the science to scientists to prove this i mean obviously look it's not hard people these people who say oh if only women had the same opportunities as men they would be as good as men in sports that's not true every world record is 10 to 12 percent basically slower on the women's side than the men's side so it's not a matter of opportunity it's just it's a matter of physiology um but it's hard to prove that because what they're what the scientists were trying to do is like look at within a subset of like okay let's look at all elite 800 meter runners and you know, do the ones with higher, do the women with higher testosterone levels beat the women with lower testosterone levels? And the answer isn't necessarily yes. I mean, they did find some evidence of that in 800, but not in all events. Whereas you know that, you know, that that's sort of the case between men and women in general. So he's sort of talking about that. And this is what he's saying. And he's saying, um, 
when discussing tea and performance, it is important, in my opinion, that the issue be framed appropriately. By this, I mean that one should not be asking whether women with high tea outperform women with low tea, or that men with high tea are, are better athletically than men with low tea. This cre- approach creates numerous loopholes and erroneous thinking. The one man being that one can that you can explore this relationship, not find it, and then conclude that tea is not important. This is what the many academics have done. They will look for associations between tea and performance in a group of athletes, all men or all women, and then find no association, thus concluding that tea has no effect. The problem with this argument is that when you look at the relatively these relatively narrow groups, like just women or men, who start off with different levels of that variable, then the effect of that variable disappears because they're all matched for it already. Exclamation point. Then he compares this to marathon runners. So listen right here if you're having trouble understanding this. For instance, in a group of elite marathon runners, VO2 max will have poor predictive value for performance. But that's because they as a group have all have high VO2 maxes to begin with. So if you were stupid about how you frame your search for VO2 max and performance, you conclude it has no bearing. You know, and that he thinks that that's what people are doing with testosterone versus men and women. So it's not really the difference between the women that's as important. It's the biggest the difference between the men and women. So it's kind of hard, hard to prove. Um, so really interesting stuff just from a scientific standpoint. But guys, we got, we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. Should we move on? One more thing about Semenya. Yeah, I wouldn't lower my testosterone if I was her. And Robert said she could be, you know, representative for underrepresented groups. No, she can be a representative for people who are authentic people living their lives, who they are. She's handled herself wonderfully and gracefully for this thing. I think she's going to be, I don't think she should be competing against women in 800, but she's going to be missed. I mean, she handled this thing wonderfully. So that's my final words on the caster. But yeah. Yeah, I have nothing but respect and admiration for her. Even though I disagree she should be competing in the women's category, I think she's handled herself as gracefully as anyone in this very, very difficult situation could have. So really a lot of respect and admiration for caster. And there's also been some silent victims to this. I mean, a number of people, I, I don't want to mention names, I don't want to be sued, but I believe an Olympic champion had the same condition as Semenya, a recent Olympic champion. And a lot of those people weren't doing the hormone treatment. They were having surgical treatment. So that was permanent. And that's why they sort of fell off the earth and, and were never seen from again, even they were running faster than Semenya in the recent past. But moving on, guys, London Marathon, what a race. L.A. Kipchoge, an 20237, John, is that correct? That is correct. Another guy, 203, 20255. Mosinet Garamu, second place. By the way, he was one of the people that I suggested in the betting. Wasn't that correct, John? So you get it, you to bet on him to win. So you're trying to take credit that you made a good bet when the guy got beat by 18 seconds. I said both were good bets, and I was proven correct. So, well, what, no, what I what I remember is Robert immediately after the marathon's over, Robert's texting me and Weldon. He's saying, "I told you to put five hundred pounds. We would have made a killing if you had done this." And I'm like, Robert, he does this. It seems like after every event, he's like, "Oh, I knew this. We could have made so much money off of this." And I never see any evidence that he actually made these picks before. Yep, same thing. Right at the World Championships in track, Robert will text when it's impossible for anyone to go to a betting house. Like, you need to go bet on this. And then afterwards, he claims like victory on the bets he <laughs> didn't make, but we should have made. Like he had. I agree. Talking about betting and actually placing having the butts is is bad. I, I was gonna. St- Next year, someone call into the podcast. Remind me. I want to take like how much cash can you take overseas? Ten thousand. We'll take nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars, John, and just go load up. I, 
this is a true story. I was going to have John place $500. I was going to say, put 500, <laughs> 500 pounds or whatever you have. This is it. not a true story. <laughs> I was going to. And then I was going to say, I listened to the podcast. By the way, guys, I was a guest on the podcast last week. I listened to the whole podcast last week. I was very impressed. Y'all did a good job. I enjoyed it. Um, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And, and after listening to the podcast and John talking about the women, I thought, gosh, Bridget Coast guy, we've got to bet on her how casually she is. I was like, Kitani is not the bet. So I was looking on Saturday night at the odds, and I think that the, that that the um, what do they call it? The Sharks, the professional betters. I think they must have listened to my read my betting guide on the London Marathon because the odds had changed drastically from when I published my betting guide piece. Kipchoge's odds went from fifty eight percent to like seventy one percent. Remember, we said he probably wins about seventy five percent of the time. So I'm like, well, there's not great value there. So that's why I didn't text you, John. Plus, John's dad had flown over to surprise him to go to some ridiculous soccer match or some terrible soccer team. So I didn't want to inter- interrupt family time, John, and tell your dad. I didn't want your dad to think I was a degenerate. Hey, son. Uh, hey, uh, boy, can you go place a $500 pound bet? Your dad needs to respect your, his son's boss. He, he's, you're an Ivy League grad, John. Your dad wants to thank you work for a reputable company. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't listen to these podcasts. I don't think he does. I think my mom might, though. So she might pass the message on to him. Oh, gosh. We're having penis and circumcision talk. I'm sorry. This is gold. Well, because you keep bringing it up, Weldon. But anyway, uh, it was a terrific men's race. Kipchoge, I mean, what else can you say about this guy? I, I tweeted on after the race. I think I ran out of things to say about him after Berlin when he broke the world record. I mean, he's clearly the GOAT. He has the world record. I guess I'll try to go against that tweet and say a few more things about him. Essentially, he he just drags. He's essentially the Semenya of the marathon, and I say that in this way: he will drag people on to some incredible performances behind him. Casta Semenya was at her best when she was running her fastest times. She came without a pacemaker, and Kipchoge. It's almost as if the pacemakers are holding him back a little bit in the first half of this these marathons because he came through London in sixty one thirty seven. He closes in sixty one flat. He came through Berlin in his world record. In 61.06, he closed in 60.33. His second half, he just he drops a 4.26, 25th mile, just casually. It doesn't look like it's hard. He says it's hard. He says he said after the race he was a little worried that they were still with him, but it's just phenomenal what this guy does time after time, 10 straight marathon wins. We take it for granted a little bit, but before he came along, if you won three straight majors, people would think that's ridiculous. And now he just he hasn't lost in almost five years. It's just totally absurd. This guy, he's sick. It's pretty interesting, John, that, and it sounds like in Berlin, you know, each half was about 30 seconds faster than the halves in London. I mean, that Berlin run was so sick. And this London run, I think it shows a lot of times, you know, the Pacers were going out maybe a little too fast in London and this was the way to run it. Exactly. Yeah. Last year it went out in 422 for the first mile and 1348 for the first 5k. And this time, they were slower, but I was thinking they're actually going to run faster because there's not going to be that big slowdown in the second half. But he's still running. We, we Last year, we thought that was the th- one thing I was thinking about this race. We thought a 422 open mile was absurd. Here, he ran a 426. Was it the 24th or 25th mile? 25th mile. 426? And let's give Garamu some credit. I mean, he's only 18 seconds back. And and. As great as Kipchoge is, and please read the piece, I tried to put his greatness in perspective. Ten straight marathon majors, that's absurd. I mean, he's won over 90% of his career marathons. I think it's ten straight wins, not ten straight majors, right? 
because isn't wasn't his first win in 2014 and in Rotterdam. Yeah, but then he lost out of a major, and then all the rest have been majors. Yeah, well, you'll have to check the numbers on that. Ten one. straight majors, ten straight majors. I'm with Robert in that one. Yeah. So I'm going to look this up and prove you guys wrong. Okay, so he he's just a machine. I mean, if you, I, I, one of the things I did in that piece was I looked at the five guys who have been world ranked in the number one in the five years before Kipchoge took over. I think Kipchoge has been number one in the world for five years in a row, right? Or at least four. This According be- to Track and Field News, I will still debate that Kip Sang should have Wilson Kip Sang should have been world number one in 2014. Track and Field News gave it to Kipchoge for some reason, which I don't really know. Kip Sang won London and New York that year. I thought that was better than what Kipchoge did. But anyway, resume. Yeah. So. Um, and, and not only one of those guys had had even a career win rate of over 50%. He's over 90%. I mean, how crazy is that? Correction. No, I mean, never, no correction. Of course, I'm with John. I'm with John. Nine straight majors, 10 straight wins. Kipchoge lost. Rotterdam 2014. Never in doubt. He lost in Berlin and then his went back. He had to drop down minor leagues of Rotterdam and then start the major win. Facts, though. Who cares about facts? Don't try and claim breaking two as a major, Robert. You know it wasn't. John exposes a genius. You know, it's just that's what people say. Like getting into an Ivy League school in nineteen ninety two wasn't that hard. Getting in when John did, fifteen years later. You know, you could I anyways, I won't make any uh, everybody knows Daddy made a check to get Walden and me in. How can someone who can't spell circumcision correct get into Princeton? All right, enough. I don't know. I think we've definitely hit our over-under on circumcision mentions in this podcast. Anything else to say about Elliot or the men's race? Like we had- yes. No, no, yes. I, hey, I, I, I want to say this, and a lot of people now, how much of an asterisk do we start putting on these times? The shoes are such a huge advantage. I mean, Ross Tucker, speaking of Ross, I mean, he's got a big thing on it. He's like, I don't think we can compare times. I mean, now people are regularly running 202. You're getting second place running 202. I mean, I guess in Berlin a few years ago, before the shoes were existed, two guys were running two or three, right? When I mean, that was what, what year did the shoes come out? The prototype well, I, started being used in 2016. Like the year Bekele ran two or three or four. What year was that in London? That was the full. I mean, Bekele ran two or three or three at 2016 Berlin Marathon, the fall of 2016. So, so probably in the shoes. I think too? probably in a prototype, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. So I, I do think, you know, yeah. Well, let's talk about – I want to talk about the shoes in the context of the women's race. So there, there's nothing else we can say about Kipchoge except how incredible he is. And, well, the circumcision is actually – the joke, people, if you don't know what we're talking about, is he celebrated his London win. People, the, the Monday – yes, you, John, you were at the Monday press conference after the day after the race, and they said, well, how'd you celebrate? He's like, I had a cup of tea. And they're like, well, did you drink any alcohol? He says, no, I don't drink except when it's the circumcision ceremony in Kenya. So this is a guy that's already back at it, really. He, I mean, he's just – his lifestyle is amazing. He did spend uh, Tuesday night at the Spurs versus Ajax Champions League game in London, which I was pretty jealous of in the new stadium. But I don't think he was taking advantage of the open bar there. My one thing about the shoes, though, Robert, I admit that people are running faster in the marathon than ever before. But, well, at least the men, the world's record for the women has stood since 2003. But what about what Neshtageffa? She just won the Boston Marathon. She ran 217 in Dubai in January. She's sponsored by Adidas. Two years ago in London, Mary Katani ran 217.01. Phenomenal time, fastest ever apart from Radcliffe. She's sponsored by Adidas. So 
how, are we are you saying that those women, if they were in the vapor flies, they would be running two fifteen? Or are you saying that it doesn't? What? How do you respond to that? Well, that that's a good, 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 very good point, John. I think. Well, I don't know that the shoes work as well for a woman as a man. I don't know enough about them, but yeah, maybe they could. But first of all, we got to remember Radcliffe ran her time without those shoes, right? So maybe women's running just not the same as men. It's not quite as deep. So maybe that's actually when we start talking about. Let's talk about the women's race now. And Bridget Coastguy, what an incredible performance! She runs the second, the fastest first or second half, right? In marathon history. What was the second half, John? 66-42. 12 seconds faster than Katani ran her second half in New York in the fall. And faster than Radcliffe ever split, right? Actually, I think it's not 12 seconds. Sorry. Katani ran 66-58 in her second half in New York last fall. So that's 16 seconds faster than that. And then Mary Katani, when she ran 217 in London, she went out in 66.54. So that was the previous fastest ever half as part of a full marathon. Okay. And then American Emily Sisson is sixth place. She runs 223.08. Is that right? Yep. Now, I want to talk a lot about Sisson in the context of the women's race, comparing her to Coast Guy. So 223.08, John, and you wrote this article praising her, saying how great she is at the marathon. And I was excited. The thread was very hot, very popular on Let's Run. Americans want to read about Americans. But I'm glad she's good at the marathon. I'm glad that she negative splitted her first marathon. But the more I think about it, I'm disappointed in that performance for her. Oh, I knew. Hot take incoming here. Let's hear it. No. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the podcast when I listened last week and I took some notes, and this was brilliant by Weldon. And you're seeing it on the men's side too. And some of this could be the shoes, but 223 used to be a low 220. Well, Weldon said it even after the race. Basically, if you could break 220, you know, in the last 10 years, you were really super competitive, one of the world's best in the world. But now it looks like the women are running 216, 217 up top. So maybe low 220s can get you top five, but 223 is a ways back from that. I mean, you're six, seven minutes back. I mean, that's no different really than running 209 and a two. When guys are running 204, 205, you needed to be under 210. Now in the Americans are down to 209, but everyone else is running 202, 203. The gap is getting bigger. Weldon's right. The the norm for the women is going to be 216, 217 up top. The Americans running, even Shailene Flanagan, the, even if they're running 219, 220, they're really not going to be competitive for most of the wins. Um, so I, I was happy that she ran 223, but I was, I guess when I was writing the, the analysis, I looked behind her, and the woman behind her, I think, was a 42 year old Sinead Diver of, of Australia. She runs 224. I'm like, she's only beating a 42 year old woman by a minute? That was not, that to me was a big negative for for Emily. I'm like, she should be running more than that. But then there is hope folks. I said, what kind of shoes was, was Emily running? Emily was running in some spare part of new balance shoes. She was, she doesn't have the new shoes and whether it's the fiber plate, some people think it's the foam. I think the shoes are significant. I think they're worth at least a minute, maybe two. So that could put her 221, which would have been better. I, I would have wanted to see a 221. I would have been really thrilled with that. But the fact that she wasn't wearing the cheater shoes that I like to call them, and all props to Nike. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. They talked about going out in 71 flat. The leaders went out in over 71. Why didn't she go out with the lead group? She, go with she did go out with the lead group. 
Did you watch the race, Robert? I know that you probably, it was very early American time, but she was running with the leaders through 20K. Okay. I've been exposed. I woke up at halfway, John, in the first race. Yeah, she fell off right before halfway, I think. But, to, I mean, come on, Robert. Kipchoge's greatness doesn't go away because of the shoes. And I think it's sort of interesting how the shoes are being handled. The IWF needs to enforce, start enforcing these rules. And a sort of sad note this week, Andy Crafter, one of the founders of Spira, committed suicide. For those of you guys who don't know, Spira was this shoe company that came out, I'm just going to guesstimate, about maybe about 10 years ago in the Boston Marathon. And they said, look, it, it was total publicity stunt. And they had these two guys leading the Boston Marathon in these bright yellow singlets. The Boston just went out slow that year, but these guys are leading it. And they're like, hey, our shoes have springs. They're faster. And at the time, there was a rule banning springs and all this sort of stuff. I got some publicity. Not that these things are totally related, but sort of it was interesting that then people were, were concerned about the rules and what have you. It's very sad. Like I met Andy a couple of times. I never saw him not smiling. I don't, you know, these things aren't related to shoes and his suicide. And if anyone's suffering from depression, there's help you can get out there and just... I didn't realize, you know, Andy w- was a c- pretty competitive runner back himself back in the day. I just, you know, was kind of a smiling guy who started this company. And it's just sad when anyone, anyone sort of loses their life. But someone w- was texting me like, what do you know? And this is, you know, if this company had been received differently. And I, I just was like, that's not where I want to go with this story. But I just wanted to mention his passing. Somewhat related. If they're going to have a rule on the books about not allowing prototypes, if a company comes out with a prototype or athletes are racing in prototypes, the athletes need to be disqualified. So that didn't happen. These shoes are available. So that's fine. If they're available, people can race in them. But I think it's an interesting question that needs to be addressed. I'd like to see someone do a study on sort of the problem is Nike is very good at sort of conflating the issues, right? They have Kipchoge go run behind a huge wind tunnel with illegal pacemakers and it was a wonderful, ended up being a fabulous event. It gets close to two hours, but then with no pacemakers, he runs 201.30, which was amazing. And so, and they sponsor almost all the top male marathoners. So these guys would be winning anyway. And then it just makes you question, but I think the way to do it is start looking what, you know, like what are the top Adidas guys doing? What were they doing before these shoes came out? That sort of thing. Right. Well, that's my question. So Robert is saying these shoes are worth a minute or two. Okay, so how about 2017 Berlin Marathon? Kipchoge wins it in 203.32. Giadola, an Adidas athlete, second, 203.46 in his debut. Are we saying that without these vapor flies that Adola would have beaten him by a minute or a minute and a half? I guess we are. That's a genius. I don't know. And and don't blame me. Blame, I I guess, Nike wants us to have this conversation. They like it because it's marketing. But, you know, I mean, again, we're, we're talking Ross Tucker. Go to his April 28th uh, Twitter. It's kind of like the, the opposite of the VO2 Max discussion or maybe I'm, I'm kind of – anyways, it, it's really hard to, to compare the generations of marathoners now. You know, and he said swimsuits did the same thing, especially the late LZR swim, swimsuit and the generation of crazy suits in 2008. The difference in, in the, is that the records in swimming don't carry the historical weight that running does. You know, and – Look, the Nike came out with a new 4% shoe, and the new rule is you have to be commercially available. Well, they release it on Sunday, so it's not like any Adidas athlete can pick it up. Yeah. It costs $275. They're in limited supply. So what are they supposed to do? What store is open at 7 a.m. in London? Or what time was the race there, John? 10, uh, 10 men start. Yeah, agreed. If the shoes are going to come out, it, they need to be commercially available for six months or something before they can be used in races if it's some totally new thing. 
total sponsor plug, the Hoka Carbon X is going to be out. But in talking to Mike McManus, I don't think this is viewed entirely as a... I was hoping it would be someone needs to have their version of the Nike thing. And I'll figure this out because I'm not a shoe expert. But talking to Mike, he's like, no, the carbon... They already had a carbon shoe, the Carbon Rocket, which is what Scott Fobble ran sub 210 in and so did um, Cam Levens. And he's like, that's our pure racing shoe. This other shoe is more universal. Can you be used for racing and other stuff? So it may not be Hoka's cheater shoe, but it's very interesting. And they have a huge marketing campaign behind it. So the talk with Mike on that is a little bit at the end of the podcast, but I'm far from a shoe expert, but I'm going to see it this weekend. And I don't know. I'm we- I already said I'm wearing the shoe, their shoe next week on the podcast. So I will feel personally better. And if my runs start getting better myself, I'll be cheating. So can I just mention that Nike athletes are not the only ones who are racing in shoes that aren't commercially available. When Des Linden won Boston last year, I talked to someone from Brooks or someone they, I spoke to her and Shadrach B. Watt. They both ran in a prototype shoe. It was, remember it was totally blacked out and it was painted black and people thought it might be the Vaporfly in disguise. It was not a Vaporfly. It was a Brooks shoe, but it wasn't commercially available to the masses. The shoe that, that she wore when she won Boston. I'm not saying she should be DQ'd, but. Oh yeah. No, I'm talking about the other shoe companies now coming out with their own for sure. I'm not criticizing just Nike at all. Uh, some of these other companies now have kind of have these prototypes and I think an athlete shouldn't be racing. If the rule you have a rule in the book, you need to enforce it. Otherwise change the rule or get rid of the rule. Correct. We just did a bunch of Nike marketing. Thank you, Nike. Well, and I sent you a tweet, right? I, I Someone on Let's Run had a link to a Twitter. It may not even be the carbon plate that's really that important because someone pointed out, you know, the New York Times analyzed these amateur marathons in Strava and apparently there's a 4%. There's another shoe that's just like the Nike makes. It's just like the 4%. It has the carbon plate, but it doesn't have the foam and the, the performance increase isn't there. So it could be this foam that Nike has. So it'd be interesting if the other shoe companies sort of, if it even you know, works out. So I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah. Would Kipchoge lose if he didn't have these? I mean, the interesting thing about Kipchoge is like, even in this race, when he drops to 426, it's not like Garamu was way back. He kept running the same pace. He kept on 202 high pace the entire way, but people just assume like, Oh, of course, Kipchoge is going to win. I mean, he's, there's other guys within still very close to him. So it's just, it was, it's amazing to watch. I just like watching him run. It reminds me of that Holly Gabasolesi Disney uh, movie that um, I think some Disney subsidiary made. I think, what was it called? Endurance. Where he's running. There was two Holly movies. And one of them, he's just opening scenes, him just running across the Savannah in Africa. And I was like, that is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. When you watch Kipchoge run the marathon, he's kind of has that tiny little smirk in his face. It's like, this guy's running 202 pace. He's enjoying it. You know, and it's just really remarkable. Speaking of London, guys, one other thing caught me about last week's podcast. We were talking, I think y'all were talking about Cam Hawk, uh, Calum Hawk, Calum, is that right? Callum Hawkins. Callum Hawkins. You know, he wanted to go on 207 pace at halfway and and see if he could stick, maintain that pace or pick it up. And what was his first split, halfway split? I'm not sure what he went halfway on, but he ended up fading a little bit. So he didn't pick it up and he didn't maintain his pace. And he ran 208.11, I believe. 208.14. He went through in 63.21. So he actually went through on 206 pace. So he faded a little bit, didn't quite get his goal. But when y'all were talking about him, y'all were talking last week in the podcast and this jumped at me. You're like, oh, he's a, he's a level below map. I'm like, well, wait a minute. 
Why would he be lovable with Meb if he runs 206? He just broke Meb's PR. That's what I was going to point out, folks. That's how great Meb was, what a competitor. Caleb Hawkins. Now, Caleb's been, what, 10th in the Olympics or 9th or something? 9th in the Olympics, 4th at the World Championship. 4th at the World. He's a good, I mean, he'll say, I'm sure some people are outraged. Like, comparing him to Meb is ridiculous. Well, I mean, yeah. Before Meb won New York and before Meb won Boston and his Olympic medal, I mean, at, at this age, I mean, Meb wasn't even running the marathon. So it is interesting to point out just, you know, how good run by, by Callum. Indeed. And it was actually very interesting to see not just him, but a bunch of non-African-born runners going out hard in that race. You also had Dowie Griffiths, another Brit, going through in 63-25. Brett Robinson in Australia, and this was the first time he had run a marathon. He did, I think he ran Fukuoka and dropped out. So this, I guess you could call this his semi-debut. But he was also... I like talking to Brett at events. I was very happy to see him run 210. Yeah, he was also out there. And then there was Henrik Schost. I'm sorry, I must have botched the pro- pronunciation of that, of Poland. He went through in 63-31. So these guys were getting after it. And they slowed down. I mean, they slowed down. Most, of the, I think all of them still ran PRs or close to it. But it would be interesting to see. I would just love to see what it would happen if we threw all the top Americans in London and had them go out in 63-30. What would happen to them? I'm not saying that this is a wise decision or that you would want to spend a marathon sending them there and they turn down the appearance fees from Boston whatsoever. I'm just think, saying as a thought experiment, I would be fascinated to see what would happen. Damn you, Chris Derrick. Why'd you have to get hurt? I don't think uh, Dewey Griffiths ran a PR. He ran 211. John, since you know almost everything about running, I'm fascinated to know, is Joshua Griffiths, who was 21st in London, 214, is that Dewey's brother? I don't think so. Mm, I assumed it was, just based on the name. If you know, folks, email me, robert at letsrun.com. By the way, we forgot the plug at the beginning of the show. We're the only website. Facebook doesn't offer a phone number. Twitter doesn't offer a phone number. The giants of the internet do not want to be talked by the masses, reached by the masses. You can always reach us. Pick up your phone, 844-LET'S-RUN. That's 844-538-7786. And I'm pretty sure Robert at Let's Run doesn't work. It does. I've set up the nickname. Y'all have not set up the name. By the way, I printed up business cards for John like three years ago, and it says Jonathan at Let'sRun.com, but John never set up a nickname, so that will bounce back. I didn't set up a nickname on the Google email account that you guys control and never told me how to set up a nickname on, so that's my fault, is it? Well, you can set it up. It takes like one minute. Would y'all do that today? Well, then teach him how. Teach him how, well, then. Speaking of London, I was saying I wanted to have a new segment on the podcast, deleted thread of the week, and I was trying to pull one up. And I just went into the deleted threads to find what I wanted and was kind of deciding I was going to aim for could Rojo and Weejo run faster than Mo and his twin in a combined marathon? Interesting question. No, because his as slow as I am, Meb's twin could walk that race in about five Mo's hours. Twin. And it, what? Mo's twin. Yeah. Mo's twin could walk the race in about five hours and then, you add in Mo's time of two or something, and then I'm just screwed unless Walter runs like, no, we're just screwed. Yeah, I agree. Dumb thread because they would have killed us, but I don't know why a moderator would delete that thread. No, but no, no, I'm hoping the Mo's brother drops out. Then we win. But this thread right here, deleted thread of the week, because we actually kind of wanted to discuss this. I need to talk to Malmo. I assume this is one of his deletions. That's it. I'm calling BS on Bridget Coast Guy's London performance. 
And the thread starts off, you know, 60. Well, I read this thread. I love the thread. Right. There's actually a thread. People are questioning Kipchoge's brilliance. And I posted on that thread. We've always said we'll allow doping discussions and let's run. And some people can say they may not say it the cleanest way. Essentially, they're saying, I think she might be doping. And they might actually express that she's a doper, blah, blah, blah. But it leads to cleaner sport by letting people talk about this. Her performance was incredible. She's represented by Gabrielle Rosa, who's had a lot of athletes test positive. That doesn't mean she's a doper for sure, but like this should be discussed. So I don't know if the well, I don't like the way you said a doper for sure. It doesn't mean she's a doper. Period. I mean, right? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, it doesn't mean she's a doper at all. Like much less for sure. But I don't know if the deleted thread of the week that we choose automatically gets restored. But I'm restoring this one right. Yeah, now. I agree. I mean, like you said, she's represented by Federica Rosa, who has a history of representing dopers. That doesn't mean that she's a doper, but she won. She beat the greatest marathon field in history quite easily in the end. She won by almost two minutes. She ran the fastest second half in the history of marathoning, female marathoning. But again, Kipchoge is the goat. He's doing these ridiculous things and we don't have, we're not leveling accusations against him. Well, there wasn't, no, there wasn't a threat on him. There's a lot of discussion on that. I posted on the thread. People say, it's, I think the thread's title like, how do you explain the consistency of Kipchoge? And I posted on there, I said, look, doping wouldn't explain it to me because because people are like, the only athletes I remember being this dominant are Miguel Indoran and Lance Armstrong, and they ended up being dopers. And I'm like, what do you think? He's the only one? Like, I don't know. Babe Ruth was dominant. He and No one's accusing him of doping. Who? Babe Ruth was dominant. One of the most dominant athletes ever. No one thought he was a doper. I thought he was on horse steroids. Thank you, Robert, for the Babe Ruth doping allegation. Blasphemy here in Baltimore. Son of native son of Baltimore, yeah. But so Cosguy, sure. There it's fair to have questions, but we don't have any any sort of proof or any sort of evidential link. He he defends the Rosa charges because he says that Rosa doesn't really operate like really tight camps. That would be difficult. Hey, and and for speaking of Kipchoge, hey, a Patrick Singh athlete has has been banned by the biological passport recently. They don't train in the same group, but you know, I mean, I think it's a fair question to have. Um, I mean, the last dominant Rosa female, right, was Jemima Sungong. She tested positive. Right. And Rita Jep, too. His two best, two of his best female marathoners both got popped. So, but I just love the way you said she was so casual, John. Like, what is her personality like? Is she, you know, people in the ledge fund are like, oh, if they enjoy the wins, they're clean. If they don't, they're. <laughs> well, if people think that way, they're probably going to be more suspicious of her because in the champions press conference kipchoge was his normal self cosguy very uh, she was quiet reserved i think is the best way to put it tim hutchings was moderating it and he was asking them how they were going to celebrate and he asked kipchoge if he was going to drink kipchoge was saying no i I don't drink and then he asked cosguy if she drank or if she what kind of party she was going to have back home and if there was going to be alcohol there and she just sort of stared with a puzzled expression on her face and didn't say anything for about 20 seconds. It was very awkward. She just, she didn't talk very expansively about any of the questions that he asked her. But again, I'm not going to read into whether someone is cheating or not based on their temperament in a post-race press conference. So I, I, that doesn't mean anything to me. But speaking of Kenyan doping folks, Abraham Kipton, the half marathon world record holder, he was banned right before the race by the biological passport. They've recently certified a blood testing lab in Kenya. Biological passport is, is nailing people. We never had a, a Kenyan by, banned by the biological passport until this year. We had three or four. So, you know, if it, 
these people, I think who's the main poster co-elevator or someone, they think that all Kenyans are doping. I just don't buy that. And this is what I posted on the Kipchoge thread. We got a text or a call at, at let's run from a Kenyan American. He wanted us to investigate somebody. He'd heard some rumors about somebody a few years ago. And we, we wrote back or, or call back. I can't remember. And I said, well, you know, what do you, have you heard anything about Kipchoge and that group? He's like, Oh no, I think they're clean. That's what keeps me in the sport. So that's, I agree with the message board poster who said like, like if he's dirty, we're done. Of course, I've said that before. I probably said like, if Kiprop's dirty, I'm done. So I'm never going to totally give up on the sport. Robert, I want to jump in here about the ABP in Kenya is I'm not saying, I don't know for sure whether these athletes are innocent or guilty. I have not seen the blood values in there. I, that's beyond me. I, I can't really interpret them. But what I'm interested to know is before there wasn't, before the, recently, before this lab was certified in Kenya, I don't think we were getting as much data from these Kenyan athletes with their blood values. I don't think they were being tested as frequently as some of their compatriots in the United States. And does is there something about the fact that they live and train at altitude year round and their physiology and their inherent blood values that might cause a false positive? Because two of these athletes have denied it. Sarah Chipchichi, who was the first one popped, she looked like the progression of someone you would think is doping. But Cyrus Ruto he he looks pretty normal progression. Abraham Kipton, not as quite as normal progression. He broke the half marathon world record. But both of them claim that they had no idea what could have triggered their ABP violation. Is there any thought to the fact that they could be false positives because we don't have enough evidence from blood values from people who train in Kenya year-round? Yes. I mean, I think there is some concern. And I think this kind of gets back to this, you know, you want the science to match up and with, like we're talking about Semenya and now extending this to the ABP, busting someone for drugs is not easy. People just think like, oh, you take a test and it's like red, you're dirty and green, you're clean. Even for like some of these like EPO tests, it's a very complex test. And the ABP, essentially you're building a profile over time and saying like, there is no way someone clean can have this profile. And it's interesting because also this week, it came out, the headline essentially is after U- Ukraine sprinters ban AIU to extend its blood profiling strategy um, in advance of Doha 2019. So the Court of Arbitration of Sport ruled for the Athletics Integrity Unit in a case of an uh, Ukrainian sprinter. So essentially, like I think with, with these ABP com- cases, they're very complex. And essentially, the AIU, which is the kind of doping, anti-doping thing for the IWF, they need a victory in court to show that the science really si- signs up. So I guess until you have one of these Kenyans, you know, proven, they're going to argue. Of course, they're going to say they're clean, right? Even if they're dirty, but. Right, right. You need the science to match up, especially when you're depriving someone from the sport. So with Semenya, you want the studies to be right. Same thing here. You want the science to be work right. But they must feel confident in these cases, I feel like, unless they, otherwise they wouldn't bring them. But also pe- maybe people would argue, hey, they're going to go for a s- small fish first. but. They went after Kiprop right after the bat, and we haven't discussed that at all. The guy was suicidal, talking about shooting people, almost implying he might use his gun in Kenya. And, you know, Nick Willis sent out a tweet essentially saying, like, look, man, we're all God's children. There's redemption for you. And if Kiprop, if he's innocent somehow, like, I want him to be cleared. If not, I want to help him. I want him to help clean up the sport. It just shows sort of what's at stake I think either way, because I think most of us would assume most likely he's dirty, right? But I'm open to the possibility. I've always said, if, if you dope, I want all your records in the past wiped out too. 
So that being said, just because Kiprot tested positive now, I'm going to actually do the opposite of what I normally say. It doesn't mean I think he was dirty his whole career. I think that kid's still a, a big talent. Um, sometimes you could use EPO as a, as a just as, if you're lazy, you know. But I agree, John. I, I did think that. I'm like, well, does this biological passport, would it work the same for a Kenyan? They better – I I think – despite what these idiots, just because they're, they think, oh, all the Kenyans are dirty, some of them are dirty, I still think that they're genetically superior on average, or some of them are at the very top level than, than, than sort of non-Kenyan-born or non-Caligan or whatever. I mean, I don't know how you want to phrase it. But John acted shocked that they said they're innocent. I mean, really, John? I mean, have you heard of the five bottles of beer? And- when did I say I thought I was shocked that they were saying they were innocent? I'm saying that... The specific argument of innocence. How old were you in 1992? I was one year old. Were you alive? Oh well, I, we got we can forgive John, folks. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the life experience that we do, John. Dennis Mitchell, 1992. Go Google it. Are you familiar? Oh my God, I've never heard of this. Is this on the internet? Could I have read this before today? Do you think it's possible that one of the most infamous doping excuses ever? as someone who writes for a running website, that I may have heard of this beforehand by reading an article. But even the life experience, you might, might not understand what that excuse means. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 have you ever had five bottles of beer? I know you've never had sex with your wife at least four times. So I know the second part you, you can't relate to. Um, actually, most married men probably can't relate to the second part. Four times in one day, really? I I just think that that excuse clearly is unbelievable. Whereas the idea, if if I was popped for an ABP violation and I had never done anything, you know what I would say? I don't understand why I got popped. I didn't do anything. That's exactly what they said. I'm not saying it's correct or not, but I'm saying I'm willing to listen. I'm actually going to go with Mitchell here. Think about this. Was he actually tested on his wife's birthday? Like that could throw it off, right? If he did something really crazy, wouldn't it throw off your test? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. Hardly a treat for him to be tested on his lady in his lady's birthday, though. And once again, Robert talking about sexual prowess. A couple podcasts ago, we had a audio of the week, and it was from a guy. And I wrote him back and said, "Hey, man, we played your audio on the podcast." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I heard it. I almost wanted to write in and apologize to Rojo. I didn't want him to think I was being too harsh. I love the humor." And then he said, "I almost fell off the treadmill laughing at his comment on his." own sexual attractiveness in the last podcast and thought about calling in again. So please call in again because I want to hear your comments on Robert and Dennis Mitchell. I wasn't even on the podcast last week. I don't remember talking about my... Well, Robert was described in the Outside Magazine profile as an older Hugh Grant. Wasn't that the uh, description the author used? I often get it in restaurants. (laughs) And I'm with the identical twin and I never get it. Which, by the way, folks, I Weldon and I can use each other. We can get into each other's iPhones just for their face, no problem. So it's weird. Yeah, the iPhone thinks we're the same person, but women do not think he looks like Hugh Grant. They they prefer William Defoe. Well, and you're more attractive than William Defoe. I'll give you that. Thank you, thank you. One guy we haven't talked about is Mo Farah in London. We could talk about London all day, but we still have some Doha track, Stanford track. But real quick, Mo Farah two hundred five. What do you guys think? I think he ran a pretty good race. He just got smoked by some of the best people in the world. I mean, if you told me that the top three guys were going to run 203.16 or faster, I would have said, well, it's going to be pretty hard for Mo Farah to be in the top three. And he he ran 205.39. He went with them for the first half or so and then got down to brass tacks and he just wasn't as good as Kipchoge. It doesn't surprise me. To have range from 
328 in the 1500 all the way up to 202 in the marathon is exceedingly difficult. And I think he's a pretty good marathoner, but he's not Kipchoge. I think he's in the mix for that that next tier, but some of those guys beat him. They had better days. Yeah, I, I thought that the international broadcast of London, I was watching NBC Gold, they were like ripping him as he was coming in, saying really big disappointment. I totally disagree. I thought it was a fine, okay race. I mean, John, compare the first half splits. What was it? How much faster was last year than this year? I mean, he ended up running faster than he did last year. Yeah, last year the first half was 61 flat. This year it was 61.37. Though the conditions, it was not as hot. There was some wind in the second half, but it, not nearly as hot. It was hotter last year? Oh, way hot. It was probably about 50 degrees for the race today. Almost perfect running temperatures. It was in the 70s last year. This year was obviously better conditions for running fast in the winter ran faster. But last year he's third, runs 206.20. This year he's fifth, right? Yeah. But he runs faster, 205. I mean, part of it's just a matter of like if he finishes third, people are happy. He's not the best marathon in the world, but he's in the mix if Kipchoge is off his game. Um, I thought it was fine. I thought that I was proud of, of Mo for after the race, apparently being okay with that race. It's what we talked about last week in the podcast. The, the the British expectations were too high for him. That's why the betting odds didn't make any sense. And, and that post-race article, you know, I, I thought it was good that he thought, okay, I ran a pretty good race. I just I, I just didn't quite have it in the second half. And speaking of one thing, we, we didn't finish up the highly Mo fight. I thought Gary Lowe made an amazing point when – the British press was out for blood with Mo and I kind of enjoyed it. And I kind of realized like, wait, we're kind of being unfair to Mo. So I put up some of these. I realized one day I, I added some of the, or, you know, we had our own articles on the situation, but I added some of the headlines where with the articles that were defending Mo. I, I thought his, his quote about how Gabriel. I said, he's like, look, he's talking about Mo not wanting to go to this, not being upset because I wouldn't let Jama add into his camp. But then this guy's, well, he's like Gary Lowe, Mo's coach is like, well, you let Jama and coach Ginzebe de Baba. So, can we stop the hypocrisy? I disagree with that, though. Is it the head of the federation's job to intercede on when some athlete is coaching someone else that they don't disagree with? I mean, Justin Gatlin was being coached by a doper, Dennis Mitchell, for years, and Dennis Mitchell was named head relays coach by USATF. Is it really the job of USATF, if, of Max Siegel, to say, hey, Galen Rupp, you can't be coached by Alberto? I wouldn't want the head of the federation interceding. Well, is it really Hiley's job? Well, I guess if, I guess if if Moe's with Jama, I guess it is Hiley's job to point it out because Moe's lied or Moe has said he hasn't he wasn't with Hiley, so that would be significant, I guess. Anyways, yeah, I mean, what's next for Moe? I don't know. Winning Chicago, I think, isn't the same as winning one. So, what's next for Moe? Speaking of that, Great Britain today announced their team, the automatic selections for the World Championship Marathon in October, and they named Callum Hawkins and. Dowie Griffiths as the two automatic selections. They said specifically Mo turned down his automatic selection because he was the top Brit at the London Marathon. The London Marathon was the selection event. So they still have one spot remaining. They could name him. But no one thought Mo would run would run World Championship Marathon, right? I mean, come on. This is what his camp has been trying to throw out there. I've never bought it, but they've said he plans they've said in the past he wants to run worlds they said after chicago gary Locke said he was either running the tank he's running the world championships yeah in the 10000 yeah that's that's what i think he's going to do it seems pretty obvious that's what he's going to do at this point but there is some talk some people are saying oh we might do new york city marathon and so there was some thinking that he would do 10000 at worlds and then the new york city marathon but the thing is this year new york is only a month after world championships so it's a it's a tighter turnaround but it does seem doable considering you know dalen rupp ran the 10k in the marathon 
a week apart at the 2016 Olympics. Yeah, I think he runs the Worlds on the track, and then we'll, we'll see what he does after that. You know, one option would be to to run. Oh, no, still even not enough time. I still think people should run Tokyo because then it gives you a nice build up for the plenty of time to build up for the Olympics. Like London's is a tighter build up, but you know, I, I think that well, well then. Here we are, May first. Spring marathon season is pretty much over. There's a few more marathons, like. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is this, are you going where I'm going? The Olympic qualification? We don't know. Yeah, we need to get this figured out. People are tra- planning their fall marathons, and USATF has still had no clarification if they're going to go off world rankings or hold the two eleven thirty standard, which would be very stupid. We need to get on that. Let's contact USATF today. Let's contact the IAAF. See if there's even been an appeal. I mean, okay. Mr. Million Dollar Man, you're going to file an appeal when? People need to know now. Yes, yeah, so just a very simple solution would be the U.S. will have three qualifiers. Just allow it. The top three at the trials can go to the Olympics. An automatic exception for countries that have 10 people who would otherwise make it or something like that, or five or whatever. I mean, probably five in the U.S. But people are planning their careers. This is their job. They do two of these a year, and they need to plan now what they're going to do. And making the Olympics is their number one priority, and they only have one more chance before the trials run a marathon, maybe one chance. Uh, and I want to share a story about this. And the, the people in the IWS may not realize it. They probably don't. They don't think, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, the U.S. can send three. Does it really matter who they send? Yes, it does. I went to brunch with my wife's friend last week. You know, she actually ran in, in high school. She was really good at the private school level. She was like a 520 miler. but she was there with her new fiance and they like said to me like, Oh my gosh, you're going to go to Atlanta next year. I'm like, Atlanta. Like, yeah. For the Olympic marathon trials, we're going our friend, our friends in the trials, we're going to rent a house and stuff. It's going to be so much fun. And I, it just blew my mind. It reminded me of like when Weldon was running, you tell people he's a runner. They didn't understand it. If he said he was in the, in the Olympic trials, they were so excited. They were so excited. So I started talking to them about it and it's, it's one of their friends that's in DC and, she works a full-time job on the Hill and she's qualified for the trials. I forgot her name and her time, but I'm like, okay, I wanted to make sure I'm like, I wanted to tell them like, okay, you know, she's not going to make the team. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know she's not going to make it. I'm like, then I w- didn't want to kill them and say like, well, you know, under the current rules, like she can't even make the team. If she got top three. I was like, yeah, they got this stupid thing, but just the dream. Like let them have that dream. If the first 45 women run off the course for some reason, you know, the 46 person woman can go to the Olympics. Like, is that what you want though, Robert? Say that happens and all the good runners take a wrong turn. And then we're naming the 46, 47, 48. If, if there's Boston marathon weather and, and Sarah Sailors gets second. Yes. I want her going to the Olympics. It makes it more interesting. So, all right. A little track action. I moved to track. And last week when I was listening to the podcast, guys, the podcast was, you know, I forgot I was listening to it on a run or something. One of my five mile runs, I can bang out an hour, 20 podcast. So, when y'all went to the track talk at the end, I'm like, no, the podcast has been going on. Don't talk about the track. Just hang up. But then I kind of enjoyed the track talk, but I, I did want to make a correction. Y'all were talking about Michael Norman and you wanted to know if his whole season can go on this long. And I thought, of course it can. Like how long do you think his season was last year? And I did the research, you know, he opened up in, in February and then ran all the way through July. So that season from beginning to end from his first 400 of the year to his last 200 of the year, when he was running under 20 seconds, 145 days. If you, if you time it out from Mount Sac, uh, the date of the 400, I didn't of his opening 400 this year to Worlds. I just picked October 1st, which is in the middle of Worlds. It's 164 days, so it's 19 days longer. 
but he doesn't have to race as much as he did last year. So I, I think he'll be fine. Very good. And I think on that note, let's move forward to some discussion of the track meets this week. Big week in track. We got Peyton Jordan on Thursday night at Stanford University. And then opening day, one of my favorite days of the year, the Diamond League meet in Doha on Friday. Let's start with Peyton Jordan. And the thing that's most interesting to me is that Yomif Kajelcha is running this meet in the 5,000. And I'm kind of curious why. Because he's someone who's not going to have a problem getting the IAF standard or anything at these Diamond League meets. It's quite early still. We got five months till Worlds. And he had a very hard indoor season. Why do you think he's even running this meet, guys? I never know what Alberto's guys are doing. Sometimes the Ethiopian has a time standard for stuff. But that would mean he would try to go out and crush it and run like, you know, sub 13. And the rest of these guys, it's sort of like a glorified time trial for usually like Americans and top Canadians and that sort of stuff. I mean, you got Ben Blankenship, Ryan Hill, Drew Hunter, Eric Jenkins, Justin Knights in there. But like none of those guys are going to be sub-13 guys, Seguro Osako. So uh, I think it's probably just uh, Alberto and them. They want to keep the guy race sharp and get a good time. I, I assume he's not trying to run a 12.55, but I, I could be wrong. But if he's running a 12.55, they would need rabbits for that. So maybe he's just trying to get a race in. I mean, this usually is, is a more of a – it's for the guys hoping to make sure they have the world championship standard. It's not for a, a race for a top pro. I mean, they run it, but it's it's not. Are there any other NLP guys in there that need a standard or something? He could rabbit it. Eric Jenkins is in there. Maybe he's going to rabbit it for Jenkins, or maybe just confidence booster. Maybe just you know, I think Alberto likes to keep him racing, keep him honest, see where they're at. Maybe he's going to work on something, shifting gears, slamming at home. You know, if you, if you, if you, you know, if let's say they're running thirteen ten pace and he slams at home and breaks thirteen, that would give him confidence. I, I don't know. I mean, Alberto's got a plan for everything. And I'm glad we mentioned Alberto. We haven't mentioned Alberto. It's a podcast rule. We haven't bashed him yet, though. So I don't really have anything to bash him about. He was in a Ken Go article. What was he talking about? Oh, oh, Galen Rupp on the road to recovery. Speaking of master troll, folks, Galen Rupp is back up to, well, it depends on how you talk about it. According to Alberto, he's running 100 miles a week. In reality, he's running 60 miles a week. So people call me a troll for saying, I started a thread saying, Alberto Salazar says Rupp is running 100 Salazar miles a week. I've invented the term Salazar miles. <laughs> Rupp is running, this is great news, from his surgery, 60 miles a week. And then he does another 60 miles either on the anti-gravity treadmill or the underwater treadmill or some combination thereof. So Alberto Salazar apparently takes about two-thirds of a underwater treadmill mile and counts that as one mile. So 60 plus 40 is 100. So Rupp is, you know, working out a lot and is obviously getting pretty fit. But again, Rupp needs to know about this rule too, because I don't think as, as meticulous as Salazar is, I assume he thinks Rupp can run two eleven thirty or whatever it is in the heat, in the hills. But I don't think Alberto would want to risk that. That would be best case scenario to me. We hold the trials, Rupp wins it in like what's the, what's the standard, John? Two eleven thirty. Yeah, I hope Rupp wins it in two eleven thirty one, and then dare USATF not to send him. Yeah, that would be pretty crazy. Uh, I, I I kind of assume he'll come back and run Chicago in the fall and knock out the standard. I think even if he's not 100%, but if he's not at 100%, maybe they don't want to risk him. Anyway, it was interesting. NOP had this video of his recovery and they showed the scar on his Achilles. It was pretty gruesome, actually. They said they're hoping it gets better, but they gave you a really big close-up. So it's not something they've usually been very protective of Galen and not showing him in the media very much. So maybe a change of approach. I need to call my surgeon. Rupp and I share the same Achilles surgeon. I, my Achilles hurt for a full year. I mean, there's no way I'd be banging out 60 miles a week. 
Yeah, but you've never run, you know, 350 in the mile or any of the other stuff for Upstone either. Oh, it's just because he's got such a supreme pain tolerance, John. You're right. Well, that's what the surgeon said. Amal Saxena, Robert and Galen Rupp's Achilles tendon surgeon. John, tell us, what else do we have at Stanford? It sounds like, so tell us the big races. There's a big 5K. I, I, I know nothing about it. And then let's talk big, more importantly about Doha. But one other thing about one other critique of last week. Walden said, if only we had pay-per-view in our sport, we could watch Mo Fair and Holland Gavrosolosi on pay-per-view, like in a cage match. Yeah, I would watch that. But I was like, dude, we already have pay-per-view. It's called Runner Space, USATF Plus, Flow Track Plus. We got to spend like three, $400 a year to watch this crap. Moving on. This meet is board plus behind the float behind the flow track paywall at about one in the morning east coast time so on a thursday night so i don't know how many people will be watching we really i mean ever who wouldn't sign up to watch a race at one in the morning on a thursday night behind a paywall where no one cares who wins and they're only going for times isn't that the most exciting thing you guys could possibly imagine <laughs> but anyway we got a women's 10k sifan hassan she's making her debut in the 10,000. So that's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, obviously, that would just be to knock out the world championship and Olympic standard because Alberto has said she's trying to run the 5K and 10K double this year. Amy Craig's also in there. So that's pretty interesting. Women's 5K. This one's interesting to me. Jenny Simpson is running. She's taking on Rachel Schneider, who was the runner up at USA's last year. Simpson, she's, her focus is still going to be on the 1500. But to me, this is interesting because if she runs this, can run maybe hit the olympic standard gives her maybe a backup plan if her speed starts slowing down a little bit this year or next year i think it's just keeping her options open and busting the rust as she moves into the meat of her season this year but isn't it it's interesting to see her running the 5k any thoughts on that guys well i i love it when people run the 5k strength equals speed in my opinion so i'm very excited to see that i'm actually excited to see craig in the 10k because she ran so bad on half marathon i'm, I'm gonna make my olympic team predictions for next year soon in the marathon i want to see how craig's looking so another you know with shailene flanagan out with injury but the, john if simpson needs a backup plan please don't let it be the 5000 i like the strength equal speed i think it's going to help her in the 1500 but she needs to run the steeple if if if, if she's i mean that's where she could be world competitive still not the 5000 interesting point i think i do agree with that actually if she doesn't make the the team and the well, she'll make the fifth team in the fifteen hundred. But if she's thinking about meddling, yeah, steeple is a better route than five k. One other race to note there: Grant Fisher and Sean McGordy, one Stanford's current star, one former Stanford star. They're facing Clayton Murphy in the men's fifteen hundred meters, so that should be pretty interesting to see. But I think we need to move to Doha because that's really where the matchups are more entertaining and where we we care more who wins. We've got some really good ones on tap, too. Men's 800, I think that's probably the race of the day for me. Donovan Brazier, fresh off his American record indoors, his world record in the 1600, the 600 indoors. He's taking on Nigel Amos, Emmanuel Correa, who was the world number one last year, and world indoor champion Adam Schott. I think that's loaded. Wow. How we think Bra- That is amazing, John. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Who, how do we think Brazier does in this race? I think he's going to run fast. And people who think that, you know, we're talking about why would you run this early? I don't want to hear that it's too early to run fast. I, 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 um, who had that quote? They don't ever think it's too early to run fast. We had that recently. I talked, I interviewed someone. You know, no one remembers. But when, when I first started coaching at Cornell, uh, Lou Dusing, the women's coach there, who coached, we, I think, fairly shortly thereafter, Morgan Houston, he ended up being world number one in the, in the 1500. She was on the team and, so I was like, these people are racing all the time. And he's like, look, I used to think that too. And when I started coaching, 
he said another college coach, and I, I wish I knew who it was, told him, he's like, look, by the time they get to the NCAA championship and outdoor 800, you want that to be between their 20th and 25th race of the year. And that sounds crazy. And you do the math, and it was a lot of the top 800 runners were banging out PRs in the 2025th race of the year. You know, now some of those races were 400s, obviously, indoors and stuff like that, four by four, stuff like that. But 2025th race, they were crushing it. And, you know, I, I just think in 800, you, you can hit it pretty often. Yeah, I think Career is still going to be the favorite in that one just because he was pretty much untouchable last year. Yeah. But Brazier, Brazier was phenomenal indoors. He did lose to Michael Cerrone at Milrose, but he he was in really good form. I'm excited to see what he can do. He hasn't PR'd since his uh, collegiate record back in 2016. I think that PR 143.55 could fall in 2019. We've got a men's steeple. No Evan Jager, no Consensus Cup Prudo. So. Surprise. What a shocker. Yeah, it's not as interesting as we would like. There's still Benjamin Keegan, who won pre last year. Sufian Al-Bakali of Morocco, the silver medalist at Worlds. Hilary Bohr and Andy Bayer making the trip from the US in that one. Men's 200. I want to talk about this. Talk a little sprints. So I was looking at the start list of this. There's nine guys on the start list. Two of them are men from Qatar who have slower personal bests than Daphne Skippers. And part of this is many of the host countries for Diamond Leagues, they'll get one or two people in who normally wouldn't be able to compete just because they're the host. Yeah, Jabba Hilal Al-Mamari, his PB is 2174. Owab Barrow, his PR is 2187. Daphne Skippers is 2163. The problem as I see it, and this is the worry about people with the world rankings making being part of the Olympic qualification system next year, is these guys will get bonuses. One of them will get 80 world ranking points, bonus points for finishing eighth in this race, eighth in a diamond league. That's the same amount of points someone would get for finishing second in the U S Olympic trials next year. In terms of bonus points, you do get some, you get more points depending on how fast you run. But I think that's the worry people have is these guys are taking two lanes in a diamond league 200 that could be going to guys who are significantly faster than them. And they're depriving some athletes of world ranking points. My take on that is, it shows the flaws, and, and they need to value. They, they undervalue the U.S. championships and Olympic trials. That's why the marathon trials should just be automatically go. But the eighty points doesn't really matter because you have to run. Most of your of your ranking points come from your time. So if you don't run fast, the eighty points isn't going to really matter. Like they run twenty one seven. It doesn't. It's not like that's going to get them to the, to the Olympics. So maybe or maybe it helps them a little bit. But anyone else who would be taking any anyone else who's finishing eighth in the Diamond League. 200 is probably going to have no problem making the Olympics. So I don't think it really, they shouldn't be in there, but it doesn't really bother me. But it shows how certain meets will have undue influence and you want people competing at the best stuff. But then if you reward athletes who really shouldn't be in the meet and they're getting points, it's a flaw in the system. But the biggest flaw in the ranking system is that the U S championships and very competitive national championships are undervalued because I think all national championships of all countries are treated the same, which is just ridiculous. I was thinking of of of, of, a, of an excuse because I left doesn't want to have like they don't want to think that they're favoring America, but really it happens the same thing as the problem with the Japanese trials. I, I think the solution should be if you have five athletes that are going to qualify, then you can send any three you want, or maybe it's six. You know, if they're high enough in the rankings, and I think on Let's Run soon we're going to be publishing. We got a guy that has volunteered us to a list, a computerized list to show you how far down like the forty eighth person would be. 
yeah, very good feature coming soon on Let's Run. Women's 800. Let's move on a little bit. RJ Wilson and Raven Rogers both running this race. And interestingly, we've also got Francine Niansaba and Margaret Wambui. John's missing the headline. This is the swan song for Wambui and Niansaba. I can't wait. Yeah, this is three of the big four. I mean, these 800s are stacked. I didn't say anything about the men's 800 earlier, but like career brazers and Amos, I mean, that's sick. That's a tremendous race. And this woman's 800, I mean, sure, you don't have Caster Semenya in it. Please, Caster, please go run it. But Nian Saba, Wambui, and AJ Wilson, like th- that's three of the big four. So should be a great one. And, th- you know, now AJ Wilson is this – we didn't talk about the impact of the ruling, what this means for her, but this means she's the top 800 meter runner in the world on the women's side. And the gold medal is there for the taking. We missed one of the headlines. What a great, we didn't think about the psychological aspect. How does Semenya feel right now when she hears that? That's just got to be crushing. And the way, but maybe she thinks, oh, I can overcome it. I'll run to the 5,000. I think a lot of athletes, they think it's about their willpower and they don't realize how talented they are, or how much testosterone they have. They think, oh, that can overcome it. No, Caster, you can't overcome it. You're never going to be elite again. I feel bad for it. It's good. If she was actually like a scientist, it'd be crushing. But but AG, oh my God, and and, and Lindsay Sharp and these people, uh, I, are they like training with abandon right now? Like thinking, oh my goodness, this is great. Well, here's the other thing. Times are going to slow down. All these times, RJ Wilson broke the American record two years ago because she got dragged along. Obviously, because she's very talented, but she got in a race where she was dragged along by Casa Semenya and needed to run that fast. She didn't even win the race. She got 155. So, I think the times you're going to see in these Diamond League meets are going to slow way down because you're not going to have that second rabbit in effect in Semenya or Nian Saba dragging people through. Times are going to, it's going to be like 158s winning Diamond Leagues. Fine. I'd like to do a real race. I'm sick of rabbit races. Well, just saying that's an effect on the sport. Uh, so that 1500, that 800 will be interesting. We've got a men's 1500, mo- a lot of Kenyans in this field. Uh, no Americans in the men's 1500, which I guess if you look at the times that Americans ran last year, not many of them were going to be able to get into Diamond Leagues anyway. But Timothy Chariot, the Diamond League champion the last two years, and Elijah Manningoy and George Manningoy, his younger brother, the world junior champion from last year. Elijah is 3-0 all-time against his brother. And then we've got the return of Ronald Quemoy, who is the 2017 Bowman Mile champion. He's a 328 guy. He won Monaco a few years ago as well. 2017? 2017 Bowman Mile champion. Anyway, he's good. He was injured last year. He was injured in 2017. He would have been one of the top threats for a medal at Worlds. So he's back. So that's interesting to me. This is his first Diamond League since 2017. And then the 3000, Helen O'Beary, the World Cross Country Champion, is running that. And she's facing Genzebe Debaba, who is not dodging the competition for once and actually showing up and running a diamond league against a really good runner. So that's going to be interesting to see how she does. That 1500 has me really excited. I, I, we sh- John, instead of just listing the events, we should have gone with the big ones first. And But Ronald Kamoy, remember, this is a guy, Renato Canova, he anointed him as the 2020 Olympic 5,000 meter champion because Kamoy ran 328 in 2014. That's a world junior record. 328 in 2014. This is, again, he was, he would have been 18 at the time when he ran 328. Officially 18. Yeah, but he he was the guy that was training in Japan. Um, For some reason, I would probably believe their age is a little bit more. He'd have to probably lie about his age before he got to Japan if he was doing that. But, you know, he's got 
at the time he had run 1321 for 5,000. So you combine those two and it's, you think it'd be hard to beat in the 5,000, but his 5,000 PR really hasn't budged it's now down to 1316, but hasn't, you know, those injuries have hurt him a bit. I guess, in, I guess in 2018, he just, he, last year he did run 1319 in the year to guess got healthy again in Japan. So be really interesting to see what he can do there. Absolutely. I, my money is going to be on Manning Goyev. Her chariot isn't quite up to speed at this point in the year with five months remaining to world. So I would bet on Manning Goy because he was the best guy apart from chariot last year. He did win the Commonwealth Games and the African titles. And then the 3K, I'm going to go with Obiri over Dababa, but who really knows with Gonzebe Dababa, she could do something. Yeah, folks, we'll be breaking it down, writing a preview so you can see the official electron preview. And folks, one interesting thing about this meet is it's going to be held in the same, not in the normal stadium that they have the Doha meet, Diamond League meet is. They're going to have the same stadium they're having Worlds in. So they had the Asian champs in the stadium last week and it was very empty. So don't, you know, there's been a pretty good atmosphere in Doha with all the Ethiopians in there and the fans, but I'm not sure it's going to be that great this weekend. And we haven't discussed the biggest track action of the weekend. White Lightning. I'm seeing all this shit in my news feeds. I hope this doesn't mean I'm like I'm a white supremacist. White supremacy is bad, but I mean, I just Googled now and it's showing up in New York Post and everything. This high school kid, Matthew Bowling, ran 998 wind dated. I mean, it's wind dated. The kid is a phenomenal athlete and it's very interesting that he's white. Uh, very unusual, but. There are a lot of white people. Well, then being white isn't unusual. It's true. Excuse me. That he's white and a very fast sprinter. And it might, you know, rework some people's perceptions of what's possible, which is a good thing. I think you saw the same article I did. It was in uh, Business Insider. And they're like, only within 0.4 of Usain Bolt. And we're just like, come on, man. Like, it had a huge tailwind. I mean, he's the best sprinter in Texas. It's pretty crazy. It's the second fastest. I mean, it's the fastest under all conditions, which is pretty nuts. For a high schooler, he's also a fantastic long jumper. I wonder his parents. I think are South African. Does anyone know if he was born in South Africa? Oh no, are we gonna have to append the African-born title. Yes, American-born. Wow, African-born. African-born. Uh, that, that, wait, that, well, let's get confirmation on that first before we just start spreading it like gospel. I've converted his time um, to steel conditions, and it's only not only, but. I mean, he's a University of Georgia signee. He's a stud, but it, it would convert to a 10.16 under if you had a 0.0 wind or 10 point. It's fast, but it's not 998 fast. Reminded me very much of Odopelli or Odopelli, Opadeli, Opadeli, <laughs> Opadeli Thompson, 1996. Well, I was senior in college. He ran like nine, like five, nine or something absurd at UTEP, but. Folks, win matters. Like his his win legal PR was like nine point nine eight. I mean, he was a bronze. He won a medal at a Worlds at one point, so still a good runner. But the win doesn't lie. Boston Marathon fans remember that. All right, does the name? Make sure I get this right. Trentavis Friday mean anything to you guys? Yeah, he was a high school stud uh, a few years ago. Went to Florida State. Didn't do a ton collegiately, but I've heard. I think. He was very fast, maybe in the 200, was uh, maybe World Junior 200 champion. I'm not sure. I was looking up the 100-meter all-time list. I was going to write an article on, on this guy Weldon's calling White Lightning because I knew it would be popular with Google, but I decided to just let the message board thread. But in the message board thread, I added like where the 998 listed and what it converted to and 
looking at the all-time list, Tavis Friday, ran, I think, ran like 10 flat in high school, right? Yeah, he's the record holder. And he was 200 world junior champion. Nailed it. Go ahead, Weldon. But as I say, it's interesting. You know, he was 200 world junior champion, high school record holder in the 100, and really nothing in college. Or, I mean, now he's trying to run pros. And he's, well, he, his career best at Florida State was 10.32. Yeah, he hasn't run under – I mean, he ran – 10.13 in 2016. It's pretty crazy. High school success doesn't guarantee future success. Everyone, enjoy what you're doing right now in life. Look up. Look at the sun. Enjoy it because you don't know what's happening tomorrow. That's my advice. But sometimes it does. No Lyles and Michael Norman were absolute studs in high school, and they're even better now as pros. That's true. And one other thing we did not discuss, Mozanet Garamu, he sort of broke the Doha curse. Dubai curse. Excuse me, Dubai court curse. Yeah, he ran 204 in Dubai, and now he's a 202 guy. And without Eli Kipchoge, he'd be the world record holder. Well, I disagree because I don't think he would have run as fast without Kipchoge towing him along. Facts, facts. Always have to get in the way. <laughs> Context. But the Doha Diamond League is Friday at noon East Coast time, I believe. Maybe on the Olympic Channel, maybe NBC Gold. It's for sure on Olympic Channel later that day, so when you get home from work, you can watch it. But Robert, John, any final parts before we talk to Mike McManus on the Hoka Carbon X project? Or you guys can ask me anything ultra. I still trying to write, write an article on this thing, preview it, but man, I don't I, like. You haven't hyped it up appropriately, Walden. So I think it's a world record attempt. I think it's going to be streamed live, right? It's kind of like a sub two attempt, but for, it's even better because it's going to be like two or three times as long. I haven't hyped it because I'm still understanding it, but I've talked to Mike about it. I'm really trying to understand like it's so hard to understand. It's like a double marathon. Well, it's like a 50 mile race. Okay. Well, some of this stuff's pretty interesting, like the hundred K distance. So comrades is 56 miles, very close to hundred K comrades. You guys, I though there is a word in the English language called comrade. I don't understand how you keep pronouncing this wrong. Yeah, but like two comrades should be comrades. Anyway, <laughs> let me, let me, John, I'm an ultra expert in let's run. This is all my knowledge. Even though you can't pronounce the most prestigious race in the sport correctly. Please, quiet. This is all thanks to Steel Town Runner, Let's Run Poster, who informs me of ultra stuff, and who on his own figured out what this event was this week. Like, everyone was under an NDA until today, and he called me yesterday and had figured it out. Comrades Comrades is 56 miles uphill or downhill. So you think those guys would do really well at the 100K World Championship, which is held every two years. And he's like, Steel Town's like, no, they never do well. Like the 100K is usually flat. It's just different. Sort of running 100K flat for time is different than running an uphill 56-mile ultramarathon. And I guess Jim Walmsley a couple years ago went and ran the 100K Championships. This is before he was a star, and he blew up hugely. And so now the world record, and also the other thing is like the world record is 609. And it used to be 610 by this guy, Don Ritchie on the track. And that was the longest standing. The IWF record recognizes the 100K record. The 100K world record was the longest standing world record period in track and field until it was broken last year on this Japanese course. And a lot of the ultra like experts are like, oh, the Japanese course has 50% separation. They really want less separation because for an ultra you can run, you know, you can get a tailwind for a 50%. It could be a huge thing. So there's all this controversy on that. But that's 609. I think the American record's like 627 or 617. And Walmsley's talking about breaking six hours. I think this could end in disaster, man. And Tyler Andrews is going to try to do it as well. So I don't know. I'm intrigued, but 
you could also see disaster happen at the Carbon X. So yeah, it will be streamed live. And you'll hear more from Mike McManus next. But Robert, filling me in. What do you want ask me? One any ultra question you got, I'm ready to answer. The record is six oh nine. Yeah. For sixty two point two miles. I got the paces if you want it. Yes, I like to I'm calculating the pace. That's five fifty six point three mile pace. For almost for six hours? That's pretty effing incredible. I think that goes down, right? So Steel Town Runner said, like, I know a human being can, can run under six hours. Uh, nobody's done it. I mean, nobody's under 609, and there's 100K World Championships every year. So he's like, look, a 620 is a pretty good time, 625. Yeah, so you got to run 556 pace, like you said, Robert. But to break six hours, you go for that. There's talk of that, and to do that, you got to go. I could figure out the pace for that. Hold on one second, but. I think 6.56, or did I say 5.56? 5.56. So six hours for 100K is 5.47 pace. I'm actually interested in what marathon pace that is. So it's two th- 2.31 marathon pace. So you got to run two marathons at 2.31 pace. That's like your PR, John, right? And then come back and run another nine miles. John, what's your marathon PR? My marathon PR is 2.35. Not very good for a 20-minute guy. Okay, John. For a what guy? 29-minute guy. Uh, so, John, I don't know if you read the article because John's got journalistic integrity, so he doesn't work in any of the Hoka 1-1 ultra marathon pieces because he doesn't want to be biased by his sponsorship. Well, now I have no problem taking money from corporate sponsors to pay John's salary so John can do, be a journalistic man of integrity. John, so I don't know if you read the Sage Kennedy article. Well, I guess you were – let me know if you've read this. I want to guess – have you guessed what the pace is for the 24-hour world record? It's viewed as one of the best world records. 930? 930 wow. per mile? John is way off. 738 per mile nonstop. For 24 hours. That, I mean, that's also ridiculous. Guy ran 188.59 miles. So that's like 24. That's like, how many marathons is that? Yeah, some of these records are nuts. 7.19 marathons. So I don't know. Like, do you run nonstop or do you take a nap? <laughs> so I was, well, I guess you're running nonstop or you're maybe walking a little bit. You got to have to take a bathroom break at some point, but it's pretty crazy. Okay. You guys not knowing anything about this as well. Walmsley also is like good on trails, like running flat roads for 100K. It's very different. Yeah, I thought, I thought Sage said he would never run roads. No, that was Killian Jornet who never runs roads. So. Not knowing anything about it. Record, no record, sub six hours. Yes, they're going to get the record because it's like the Nike sub two thing. It's an epic fail if they don't get the record. Breaking two, they didn't get the record was far from an epic fail, Robert. Come on. No, no, I'm saying, but they still, like if you went to a five, it would have been bad. But I, I assume they're going to at least get I, I assume they're going to get it. Like these marketing people are smart, right? Yeah, I assume they'll get it. They targeted something that they think they can get. They're sending their best runners out to do it. And I, they got their own cheetah shoes, right? So with the cheetah shoes. Go ahead, Walton. I assume they would get it that they would go for a soft record, but the more I look into it, if maybe 609, fine, it's there for the taking. And Steel Town's like, yes, in theory, someone can go for six hours. But if you go for six hours instead of 609, I feel like you could just epic fail. So it, it makes it more interesting for me, for sure. Yeah, and it's like a 10 second per mile difference. It's not like you can make that up, right? Because it's such a long race. I don't know. Yeah, Steel Town said guys go out all the time under three hours for like halfway and then blow up. So, All right, guys. Well, it's been a great podcast, but we have not talked about the broadcast of the week that you want to watch. And it's under just a tiny paywall. 
ESPN Plus only costs $5 per month. Yeah, I think you can get a free seven-day trial, folks. I will be broadcasting, entertaining us, the world, on ESPN Plus, on the Ivy League Heptagonal Championships. Full day, two days of coverage, Saturday and Sunday, live from my alma mater, Princeton University. There is a disgraceful event going on there, though. On Saturday, the 10,000 finals are run. They're going to run the regular meet from like 1 to like 5 or whatever it takes. And then they're going to come back almost three hours later, run the 10,000s at like 8 o'clock at night. The high temperature on Saturday is going to be 71 degrees. The world has gone soft, led by the Ivy Leaguers. Embarrassing, John. As former Ivy League 10K guys, would you be happy to be running at 8 p.m. under pristine, cool conditions? Well, hell, if, I, if you're going to put it at night, I'd put it at 10 p.m., but what, what do you think of that? Uh, actually, I'm thinking, yeah, I ran the Heps 10K four times. Uh, I mean, fans, you're just not going to have any fans in the, there at all. No one's, Very few people stick around for the 10K anyway. Now you're going to even have, have even less, but it does make it... I, I want to say I probably ran at a temperature in the 60s. It wasn't that bad. If it's really sunny might be nice to run it in cool conditions, but they're not going for PRs. They're going for the win. Robert, if you're getting paid by ESPN, I mean, it's a big company. You demand overtime. Demand the big bucks. But, guys, I think that's it for today. we got Mike McManus next. More on the Carbon X project. You can win some Hoka prizes as well on Let's Run if you want to participate in the debate on what the best ultras are. But up next a talk with Mike McManus, one of the masterminds behind the Hoka Carbon X project. So hopefully you guys can learn like I did about that. Robert, John, thanks. Till next week, signing off. Mike's next. All right. We're joined by Mike McManus, my neighbor, and the senior global sports marketing manager at Hoka One One. Mike, instead of being in my apartment, you're 3,000 miles away. Project Carbon X is here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I, I think you're coming out this week uh, to check out the event yourself. But yeah, I mean, funny enough, uh, running into you uh, out on Riverside Park, walking your three dogs, <laughs> running, let alone your neighbor. But uh, it'd be good to have you out on the West Coast this this week to uh, to come check out um, our event that's going to highlight uh, Carbon X shoe. And of course, uh, you know, the big thing is going after a world record of for 100 kilometers. Yeah, so is this, you guys have done a good job of keeping this under wraps. Your PR firm reached out a couple months ago and they said, hey, do you guys want to sign a non-disclosure? <laughs> and we're sort of like, oh, sure, why not? What do we have to lose? And then separately, your marketing people sort of started talking to us about doing content and let's run. And we settled on promoting, exploring the ultra marathon, which is kind of fun for us. But until last week, nothing ever crossed over. Like, the marketing, the PR guys, like you may not talk to the marketing people. So, and then you're my neighbor. So, you know, how long have you guys been planning this? Yeah, first and foremost, is this a 100K race to kind of just give us a big overview? Sure. I mean, uh, I don't know how much of a secret. We, we've been trying to keep it secret, but uh, I've been on your message boards and at least reading. And I think some people are, are uh, have got a bit of a clue or maybe they know as much as I do or, or they're sharing. But uh, you guys seem to always be like tip of the spear in terms of what you know. But, yeah, I mean the the hundred kilometer event is is certainly our way of creating excitement and aware of uh, awareness out of our our new shoe. It's called Carbon X, and it's it's going to debut, of course, at the race, and then uh, be available to everyone right after. And and more than that, uh, 
you know, we're going to do it in a big way, uh, having a 100-kilometer world record attempt. And, and, you know, that will also go after national records and, and also distances and routes. So, like, 50 miles and 100K, and we've got some of our best athletes coming over and taking part. And, of course, they're going to be running that Carbon X shoe. But, um, yeah, just, just building excitement around, um, we think, ultra distances. It's where our brand certainly uh the genesis of, of Hoka comes from that ultra trail background, but also, you know, we've got a really exciting product in Carbon X. So putting those two together and have, have created our own event this week. Um, so that's, that's sort of the overview. Um, you know, you asked about, you know, how long we've been planning this event and I would say, wow, it's been over a year now. <clears throat> you know, we started with, uh, I think the idea of, First, doing a launch event around uh, Carbon X, and you know maybe going down a traditional route of we, we started talking about something that was long that would fit our brand, um, you know coming from that ultra background and going after 100K. But I mean, well, there aren't that many 100Ks around you, <laughs> and and when you start talking about world records and you want a fast 100K on the road, you really start to narrow it. So as you as you start to Look at the time frame of when we wanted to launch and and what we were asking. Uh, you know, a, a relatively flat, fast course lines up time wise, lines up with our athletes' needs and and you know when they can do it. Uh, you know, we we came back around. To, hey, I think we need to to figure our own event to to put this thing on. And so that that's the that sort of has been crystallized over the last year. But I would tell you it's been you know a good year in the making to to help create this event and. And, and you know the other part of it was, as you said, uh, you know keep it keep it under wraps and and not unveil it until really the last minute here. So we're we're just unveiling it now to everybody, and I mean it's it's right in your face. Well, you guys did a good job of keeping it <laughs> under wraps. And you're right, one guy I didn't know. I did just get off the phone with message board poster Steel Town Runner. He's like an ultra expert. He knows what's going on. He, oh man, he, I, I, I thought this guy was like an employee or something. I read his thing and was like, "Oh my God, man, <laughs> where's his intel from?" It's pretty good. <laughs> now he's the guy that I go to for ultra advice, and I was just sort of talking to him in general about our exploration of ultras and like what what he thought were the best ultras. And he mentioned he goes, "Hey, you know anything about this Carbon X thing?" And this was last week, and I said, "I know something, but I can't say anything." He was kind of guessing around what he thought it was, and. Somehow this week he figured it out. He listened to this podcast with Sage. He started looking at tweets of some of your athletes, and he saw some cryptic thing and sort of figured it out. And then I think he's got, who knows? He wouldn't tell me who, but he's got somebody somehow. And so he knows what it is. But it sounds like you've got kind of three events going on, at least on the men's side. The, the big goal, I guess, is the 100K world record. And in talking to Steel Town Runner, it was pretty interesting because he wanted to make it clear he thought the existing road record, the two, the 609, it's like that shouldn't count. It was on an aided course. The ARRS doesn't recognize it because um, the, the record before that was by Don Ritchie. It was on the track. And I guess that was the oldest record in, in track and field. The 100K, for us people with a traditional background, we're not that familiar with it. But with these ultra guys, it seems like... Legit distance, very legit record, and it's kind of cool. It was the oldest record in track and field. So, your course is going to be certified and all of that, and, and you can get the record. Is, is that the case? Absolutely. I mean, uh, and look, I mean, it was the, the, the 100K we just set last year, and it was at Lake Saroma in Japan. And, you know, that was actually one of the events uh, we, we looked at doing, but it, it also falls 
like right in the same week as Western States Hunter Miler, and of course Hunter Miler West or Western States, the really the biggest and best known hundred mile trail race in the U.S. But you know, one of one of our lead guys is going to be racing is Jim Walmsley, and you know he he wants to defend at Western States. So we actually looked at, hey, we could actually just do this product launch at Lake Sarome and take all the athletes over to Japan and and have at it. But uh, when we wanted to launch was this is a better time for us, and also it started to collide with. Uh, our own athletes, but Lake Saroma, you know, okay, I'm I'm not going to get in an argument with, with your 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 source, but uh, you know, I, I think it's a legit course. I mean, the, if you follow the guidance, uh, I believe there has to be you're you're allowed about a meter uh, per kilometer drop in terms of elevation, and the start and the finish have to have to be within about 50% of the distance. And I, I think those are two of the main parameters in a, a legal course. And and Lake Saroma, I believe, is if it hasn't been ratified, it's going to be ratified. But, you know, I mean, Don Ritchie's a, a total stud, and I actually think they have a track record and a separate road record. So I think you could get in the weeds and say, ah, oh, they're actually two separate records and nobody really replaced Ritchie's record. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that two or sorry, six hours, nine minutes, and, and 14 seconds is sort of the, the record we're shooting for right now. And uh, and that was just last year. So that's 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 sort of what we've created with with our project Carbon X, and it's going to start in Folsom and, and pretty much jump on the American River Parkway and, and head down towards Sacramento, and it runs point-to-point point for about 20 miles, and then it intersects and does a just under a five-mile loop nine times, and so it's 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 legal, it's it's fast, and uh, we've got it. Sacramento and Folsom County is completely uh, approving of the whole thing. We have USATF out there officiating and drug testing and course certifying and all that kind of stuff. So if we get a, a record, then, uh, yeah, we think it's going to stand. I think it will stand, and I guess that's the question. You know, can you get it? Talking <laughs> yesterday a little bit, it sounds like you've got Tyler Andrews moving up in distance, and he may be targeting the 50-mile record as well, and then you got Jim Walmsley, who everyone on Let's Run is very familiar with, Marilyn Lynch is familiar with him in, in general, but I feel like on Let's Run, he's got a sort of special place in people's hearts because he's, he's a pretty good track runner. He's qualified for the Olympic trials. He sort of focuses on trails in western states, but he's turned some heads on the site, and people like me who really didn't follow ultra as much definitely aware of him. And Hey, Tyler, he advertises his pants on Let's Run, so I'm familiar with Tyler, too, so... But Tyler's never run more than 50K, I think. And so he's going to go for 50 miles or he's going to go with a full 100K. You know, is there any talk of trying to break six hours for the 100K? I mean, yeah, all those things. So, you know, we expect all the athletes to, to finish the race. So whether they're walking or crawling or they completely blow up, I mean, the guys need to get to the finish line. And we're actually looking in even if you, you get to 50 miles and let's say they break the record. Uh, we, I believe they still actually have to cross the finish line at the 100K for that 50-mile record to count. But I mean, 50 miles uh, definitely a record. I mean, Bruce Fordyce has the the world record, and so I I think just going back to the people you were talking about, the you know Tyler and Jim are, are two of the the the, the athletes that are going to go for it, and and they're probably going to go out just in speaking to them uh, the most aggressively in the race, and and I think both those guys are looking at kind of six hours is their target for 100k which you know if you start doing the math that's that's five five minutes and 48 seconds per mile or you know you're, you're going through the marathon at about 230 so it's you're not jogging you're rolling through there and, and tyler if you've looked at his straw and his training you know as you pointed out he's run last year on the track we we put together a, a 50k for him um and in santa barbara and he ran 
246, which is the pending world record on the track for 50K. So he actually has a, a pretty good margin, but he's been talking about going out actually a little bit faster than three hours through the first 50K. And then, as you said, he's never run further than that. So he's not exactly sure what's going to happen, but, you know, he's starting to expand his his distance appetite. And so he's, he really wants to go after the, the 50 miler and the 100K. And, and then, of course, you know, Jim is, uh, I, I think to a certain extent, he's a little bit polarizing on let's run. And of course we love that. <laughs> he's, he has a legit track background. You know, he's a 1352, I think 2908 college runner ran like 840 in a steeple. And, you know, but then he kind of jumped right into ultras and, you know, he's actually had already one failure at a hundred K on the roads, but he really prefers the trails. And, you know, he's, he's, he's just knocked out course record after course record in distances, uh, you know, 50 mile, 100 K trail distances, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he wants this record too. And he's thinking, Hey, that, that world record for 50 miles is a target. Uh, Bruce Fordyce is, is maybe the greatest all time ultra runner, certainly in that category of probably top four or five. You get the, you know, the ultra geeks talking about that. And, and then I think Jim would also tell you he has no idea what's going to happen after 50 miles. But, uh, you know, if you hit the target for 50 miles in that, 545 to 548 per mile pace then you know you got a shot you got a shot certainly at at six hours nine minutes for the the 100k with a big margin but uh you know six hours is also out there so i think the dream for for both those guys is six hours um but i i think you know anything world records and you know 609 would be fantastic uh um you know the american record is is still max king actually which is like 627 so you know no american's gone faster than that so there's a lot of I'd say national records, but yeah, I mean those those guys, uh, Jim and Tyler in particular, want to take a big swing at the some of these world marks and and get after it. And you know the other part of it, Weldon's, there's just not as I was saying, there are not that many courses specifically anywhere, but but certainly in the U.S. that you can go out and run a really fast time on. Uh, uh, Fordyce broke 50 miles in Chicago on the waterfront, and you can do that probably more so in the fall, just going back and forth along the bike path. But um, you know we've tried to lay out a course for you know, all the, all the athletes and, you know, as you're talking, we, we actually have eight athletes that are going to be out there going for it. Uh, you talked about Jim and Tyler, but, uh, you know, Patrick Reagan, I mean, he was third in the hundred K roads back in 2016. He's been top 12 at comrades, which is a, a similar distance, but a much hillier course. And, you know, one of the other superstars that we have that we haven't talked about, is, uh, uh, Hideki, uh, Yamaguchi, who's, you know, just a total badass. I mean, he's, he's two time defending world hundred K road champion. And I, I did listen to the podcast with, with Sage, you know, Sage is one of our athletes. He's going to be pacing, of course, because he's gearing up for comrades, but, uh, you know, Sage ranked, uh, the world hundred K road as one of the top five most competitive roads. And, and Hideki has won both in 2016. And the last year is actually, um, the second time he won, it was in Croatia. And it was just a, it was a tough course. It was like an out and back rolling course. And, he he stayed off the pace Hideki did until the last like 20k and then he just ran super even he passed uh, the South Africans and and won for the second time so you know the guy's a total stud and and then you throw in uh, the guy who races every weekend Mike Wardian and he'll be going after I'd say more uh, age group records American 45 to 49 but then uh, you know we have a, a second Japanese athlete who's also been on their world team male Yoshiki Takata and then uh, we have two females Sabrina Little and and Aiko Kanimatsu who are going to be coming out and both of those have those two have duked it out at uh, the world level for 100k so we have eight total athletes but uh, 
yeah, we're looking at national records, and then uh, up top, certainly, you know, with with Jim and Tyler, they're going to go out at a real aggressive pace, and you know, kind of push the limits. As marketing manager, is there any concern that you're getting too greedy? <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to break a, we were worried that Yumif Kajelcha was, you know, by trying to break a 1500 meter record in a mile was going to blow both of them, and if you try to break a 50 mile record in a 100k, I mean, you got what? 60, you got 12 more miles to go. I mean, that's, you'd rather go down in a flames or is it just that this is what the athletes wanted to do? And, yeah, but we, you know, Patrick we, Reagan's very good. Maybe he could sneak in there and get the record or Hideki, like you said, I mean, he's a two time champion. It's, it's, I don't know. There, there's, there, we're in a you're right. you about, there's some pretty interesting storyline. There's, there's a big unknown right here. And that's what uh, Jim will tell you. He'll tell you it's a, a fast long run. Um, of course, you've seen the kind of stuff he's been able to do, not just on the trails, but I mean, he spent like six weeks training for, you know, the half to get himself back into from, you know, crazy training to get ready for UTMB on the trails. And he was totally, you know, probably overtrained for that race. And he spent like six weeks getting ready to, you know, get his running economy back. And then he ran 64 flat at, at Houston. And so he still has this really interesting balance. You know, Tyler comes from, you know, a, a, a marathon where he's used to roads and he's also run a great 50 K, but, uh, they both, I mean, they're super unknowns that for both those guys and what's going to happen after 50 miles. So I, I think you're going to see those guys roll the dice, but they'd also say, and I've asked them, they say, we're not sure what's going to happen even at 40 miles plus. And then, you know, the guy you mentioned, Patrick Reagan and, and speaking to all the athletes, I think Patrick and Hideki are probably a lot closer. Those guys are certainly the most experienced in terms of what it feels like to run that pace. You know, Patrick's run 633, I believe, for for 100K. And like I said, he's he's been uh, second uh, twice in a big ultra that's called Ultra Vaison, which is in Sweden, uh, which is about the distance, like a 90K race. And, then he, you know, he's been uh, top 12 at Comrades' only run there. But those guys, I would say, are, are just trying to be a little bit more conservative and, you know, as Patrick said, maybe a little bit more realistic about where his fitness is. And, you know, he's also actually, Reagan is getting ready for a Western States for the first time, but uh, everyone's super fit right now. And I think you can see the guys off the top, uh, off the, off the front going for it with a couple other guys sitting back and trying to manage themselves. But I mean, that's a big part of this that I think the ultra community really gets, really wants to communicate with everybody is once you get past 50k. I mean, 50k. I don't think ultra athletes really think it's a, a an ultra marathon. They just think it's an extended marathon. But once you get into 50 miles, 100k, and then beyond that, there's so much uh, energy management um, of just taking in fuel and expending energy that uh, you know. I think you start to see in the shorter distances, but these guys deal with it for hours and hours. And so that you know, there's a huge unknown. But you know, these these athletes are all pretty good at solving problems over a matter of many hours in a race. Steel Town Runner, when I just spoke to him, he said, well, then this is different. You have to deal with food. Essentially, <laughs> like, he's yeah. like, you guys don't get that. And it's pretty interesting what he was saying about the 100K. He said it's, what's this quote? Some consider it the hardest event they ever run in terms of the roads. He just said it's very hard because, especially if you're going for a fast time, just like Comrades is almost close in distance. I think that's, what, 56 miles? 56. Um, yeah, it's two times a marathon and a 5K sprint, they call it. <laughs> so, but with a lot yeah, more climbing, you know, and, and of course yeah. they switch distances every year or they switch directions. So uphill and downhill, it's, you know, Sages is his year. It's an uphill year, but there's still, there's still a lot of 
you know, uphill and downhill in both uh, both directions. Well, that's what Sealtown was saying. He's like, you'd think that Comrades, which has a Comrades, which has a ton of prize money, all these guys go out there and do that. But those guys will do really well. There's this 100K World Championships, as you said, every two years. It's like historically the South African guys do not do well at it. Like running flat for 100K, is, it's just a different type of running. I think it is kind of interesting that with this, you know, you do have a 100K World Championship every two years, and yet this record hadn't been broken in over 40 years until last year. So yeah, but you know, they, get, they put it they in. They put it. Hours, man, I'm going to be impressed. I know nothing about this. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I was just saying, they put this. They put the worlds, of course. All you know, it's it's no different than the World Championships or Olympics. Man, I don't think anybody's going to go and threaten the, you know, the world record in the marathon in Doha. This, this year and in Tokyo in 2020, I mean, the, the course is insane that you're going to have just weather-wise. You know, I don't know if you've been to Tokyo during the summer, but the conditions are pretty rough to, to run a marathon. I mean, I was in Osaka in 07 watching the Worlds, and, you know, those conditions were really bad there as well. And that's, you know, the 100K road championship has been run in, you know, strange conditions. So the Croatia conditions really humid and just a hilly course is not unusual. But, you know, to make comparisons, you know, Sacramento – it could get a little bit warm this weekend, but it's probably going to be, you know, low 50s to start with, and and the temperatures will climb. We'll start them at six in the morning, uh, but in a relative sense, you know, there's there's about 800 feet of total uh, net elevation climbing, um, and and a lot of that's kind of a rolling first downhill, you know, 20 miles gradual downhill. There's about a thousand feet of um, of downhill, so you've got a net of I think 200 feet, so it's it's flat, but over you know, 100 kilometers or 62 plus miles. I mean, it's it's really compared to uh, most of these other races like Comrades. It's that's like a, a really flat, fast course. And the other secret with Sacramento, it's it could be warm, but it tends to be a lot drier than you know, like what we deal with on the East Coast in the summer. So we're, we're hoping for for great weather. But yeah, you know, these guys are going to take a swing at it, and and um, you know, we're looking forward. Of course, the other thing is we'll have pace setters out there for the early miles and. You know, we'll try and take some of these guys out at the pace they want, and you know, the pace setters are going to go for about 20 to 30 miles or so, and then once they they stop, then of course the, the race is done, and uh, and then uh, these athletes will be out there on their own to finish the loops. So the pacers, yeah, they're not jumping in and out. This isn't Monza too. No, no, <laughs> that's 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 actually not record eligible, so we can't have that going on. Okay. But uh, you know, for each, I would tell you, each of the athletes. Why don't you call it breaking six? Oh man, yeah. Let's <laughs> stay away from comparisons, please. But we we have a, we have pacers for every athlete, and uh, all eight athletes have their own pace setters. And yeah, even even the day before the race, is getting back to the overall paces. We have an athletes meeting, and we'll do a final check there on what each athlete wants to go out at pace wise. And you know, we'll, we're going to do the best we can to accommodate and. And, and just try and help them maximize the race. And, you know, to, of course, we want fast times, and, and hopefully we're not biting off too much. But, um, yeah, really excited about these guys going forward. And, and it's been secretive to everyone else, but as you can imagine, these athletes have known about this for a long time. They've already had to run in Carbon X uh, shoes and, and get ready for those. Um, you know, one of the other things we have, and I, I think you mentioned the start, but we actually have a, we have six teams that are going to do a 10 by 10K uh, relay. Um, it's on a separate course, which uh, is is part of the 
the loop they're going to do, which again, I mentioned the, the athletes are going to do a nine times a loop at the end. It's like 4.7 miles, but the, the relay has a similar loop. That's a 10 K loop. And, um, you know, they're separate actually records for a 10 by 10 kilometers. So we've got six teams. We've got a couple of elite teams that are in there and, uh, should be fun. So we're looking at getting hopefully a, a bunch of, a bunch of records and, you know, uh, certainly launching a new product that we have, but, but, uh, and utilizing some of our best athletes. And as I mentioned, we got three uh, Japanese athletes that are going to be in tow, but, uh, eight total athletes doing the 100K and another six times 10, so 60 people doing the, the, it's actually mixed gender relay. So five men and five women on each team. Yes. Uh, um, Scott Fobble running? Of course, man. Come on. Guy was world champion or I'm world champion. He was, he was in the worlds in, in Daegu back in the day. So we've got, uh, sub 28 minutes. Scott, uh, well, I've Scotty Boz out there. Scott Fobble. <laughs> Apologies. I was, I was getting too excited, but, uh, Fobbs is, uh, no, he's, he's got some downtime from, uh, from Boston. Oh, <laughs> I was getting too excited. I was thinking well, Scotty Boz, man. Using my Scots, like, yeah, yeah. That's Scott a, used to be the marketing guy at Running Warehouse. Like everything in this guy's like one degree of separation <laughs> for me. I'm screwing, screwing him up. Scott, well, I, make a comeback for the no, crowd that are listening, man. Make a apologies, and I got to apologize to to Fobbs because uh, he is the man. I mean, you know, and of course he wore our other shoe that we already have out there in the market, the the Carbon Rocket at Boston, and you know had had an amazing effort. But no, he's he's got some downtime. We've got we have uh, two NAZ NAZ athletes are going to be doing the relay. So Scott Smith is there. And then uh, Danielle Shanahan is the second. So we've got a couple of the the elites that are coming out um, just just to have fun with the relay. But uh, you know, I was going to say the balance of our elite teams is predominantly uh, our Hoka Aggies out there. And of course, Scotty Boz is a, a Hoka Aggie, and he has actually in his own right has run sub twenty eight minute uh, back in the day. So he's pretty good. So yeah, let's turn to the shoe quickly. You know, you said not to make comparisons to events and stuff, but like this seems very similar to the you know, the Nike Paper Fly event. Is this your response? You know, I'm getting a pair of shoes and I want some shoe shoes. That's what the kind of joke is I'm much run with these new like, shoes <laughs> that people are coming out with with carbon. You guys already have the carbon rocket, I guess, which you know, you had you already had sub two sub ten two ten marathons in it by uh Cam Levins and Scott Fobble, so that shoe's doing well for you, but like is the Carbon X is this the response to the Nike shoe? You know, what's kind of Give us an overview. What is this one? Sure. Well, so we do have the the carbon rocket out, and you're right. I mean, we've we've had uh, good success with that, and and I I think to make things clear, we're we're really not trying to make any comparisons to any competitor. Um, but you know, we we definitely are developing a family of of racing products. But this absolutely, uh, the Carbon X fits within the the geometry and, and the innovation, and it, it's really going to showcase how Hoka builds shoes. And, you know, the Carbon Rocket was a early uh, iteration of that. And that, you know, the Carbon Rocket actually started for us back in, uh, you know, it actually started back in 2014. And it started when we signed Leo Manzano. And, and that's where the expo, that's when the exploration of um, a racing flat, because we didn't have a track spike or a racing flat at the time. And so the the designers and developers and within innovation started working on uh, what ended up being the carbon rocket. And, you know, our athletes have had different iterations of an early version of that, as you, as you mentioned, uh, that uh, Cam finally wore 
um, in Toronto when he when he had a, an amazing race in the fall, and then you know Fobbs of course backed it up with another sub 210. But the Carbon X for us, I would say, is more of a uh, a little brother to the Carbon Rocket, and and they will sit together. But the Carbon uh, X for us is going to be a lot more universally accepted, where Carbon Rocket is more, I would say, just absolutely pure racer. Um, it's got a much more aggressive drop in the shoe, and, and you know, it's it's made for, I would say, uh, races from 5K up to the marathon where, you know, hey, we're, we're putting these athletes out in a 100K race, and we look at this shoe being, uh, you know, first and foremost, it has all the the design concepts and, uh, appeal that anybody that gets in a hoka would like in terms of our features and benefits of the shoe, but it's actually going to be a lot more uh, available to somebody who wants to take it for a long run, take it for a lightweight training run, as well as you know we're going to have elites that choose this flat over the carbon rocket for sure. But for us, it has much greater universal appeal. So you know these two are both going to stay out. Uh, we're excited about these, but uh, you know they both have. You know all the all the hook ingredients that I think most people come to expect, and that's the geometry, that's the the meta rocker in the shoe, that's the inherent stability in the shoe, and and those are the features that you know all Hoka shoes have, and you know these are going to be you know total badass racing shoes, and this one in particular is we, we think uh, you know anybody that wants to run in this is going to have a lot of fun, whether it's yourself, Weldon, getting back into shape and maybe just trying to run a fast 5K again, or, you know, it's Walmsley trying to take a swing at, uh, you know, a, a sub-six-hour 100K effort. Um, you know, we had a guy actually this past weekend, if somebody was really paying attention, run, you know, Big Sur, and he ran six-minute pace. He ran a little bit faster than six-minute pace in the Carbon X. So we've had it out at least once. But, uh, yeah, the Carbon X for us is going to have, universal appeal and the carbon rocket is still going to stay in a range and we'll go forward with it and that's going to be much more of a i'd say sure it's still going to be our pure performance racing shoe the rocket's going to be your pure performance racing or the yeah and that's not to say carbon x won't be our racing shoe right. but you're going to have two in the line and and the carbon x for sure is going to be we think it's going to have well we know it's going to have a much greater appeal than than the carbon rocket just in terms of the way it's built uh, in terms of the way so the stack heights are. It, will it last? Because I think, you know, some of these, I mean, essentially just talking about the Vapor Fly, that was pretty much was, was regarded as a racing shape. Is this shoe designed more for training as well? Or is it, you're talking to the wrong guy, so because I'm not the shoe expert, but <laughs> kind of curious. All the above. All the above. I think we need to get your uh, the guy you've been getting information and, and getting a pair of these. And, of course, you're going to get a pair this week. But, uh, no, we we feel very good about we we feel very good about how this fits in a range, but is you know you're going to look at the shoe and go yeah okay that's a Hoka shoe and it has all those features that you would think of you know with the you know it's super lightweight but it's it's oversized so it's got big stack heights but uh, um, the drop is I think about four mils and you know you've got a uh, a very stable geometry that it's built on which all our shoes are and 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 which is unique and also the, the meta rocker along with of course. Uh, the carbon fiber plate so you're going to have all these ingredients uh together and it's yeah, it's a fun shoe i've gone out there actually on riverside and done a few training runs in the thing and uh well, you know that, that shoe's gonna that shoe's not gonna break down anytime soon i've been paying attention i could have seen it <laughs> so too many too many dogs you got to, to deal with yeah well, on next week's podcast everybody i will be an expert on this shoe i'll be wearing it during the podcast because i need all the help i can get um <laughs> 
and you know, I'll kind of understand some of this stuff more. Um, I am, yeah, it's interesting because I was familiar with after Fable and and even Cam. I was like, wait, because I kind of knew this event was going on. I'm like, they're mostly racing in the new Carbon X, but they're like, no, they're already this Carbon Rockets new. It's really doing well, and so it, it's kind of interesting that you know you consider that pure racing, and you have this other shoe as well, but. You guys must be excited about it. I feel like otherwise you wouldn't put on this event, right? I mean, a lot of this is a culmination of, I mean, it sounds like five years of research, which is pretty crazy because five years ago, that's probably about when I first heard of Hoka. I went to the running event in Austin, Texas, and saw these, like, really at the time I thought bulky shoes. Everyone was all about minimalism. And I was like, with these bright colors, I'm like, Hoka, like, what? Is this a joke? <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward five years, and you got a track team, and you know two sub two ten marathoners, and you, you guys are still true to the to the ultra. So that's important. I mean, no, it's important. And you know our brand actually just turned ten years, but you're right. I mean, our our overall brand awareness is still very low when you look at it, especially if you get out of running. It's it's amazingly low. But uh, you know the one thing that's in common is you know when when Hoka first came out with these. You know, it's very unique geometry and its own technology. And, you know, it had this, like, mass. And I think especially because the way at the time the market was almost in the opposite direction, a very minimal type of shoes, barefoot construction, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, Hoka was was trying to solve a problem. The co-founders were trying to solve a problem of, you know, how to, how to not break your quads when you're doing these long, you know, trail races and you're just busting down hills and stuff and how it just tears away your quads and your hips and all that uh, after many miles. So they were trying to solve a problem that in that way. But, uh, you know, that's how, you know, those features came out of the geometry and, you know, the midsole volume that you have this active foot frame and what we call the meta rocker, how you roll across. And so all those ingredients of, you know, you go now forward to when you discover the brand, but now into Carbon X and it's still Carbon X features all of those things plus the carbon fiber. But, uh, you know, they're all still very unique to Hoka and uh, fit well within, you know, the genesis of the brand. Well, it sounds cool. And my wife, she she bought Hoka's about two weeks ago, so I think that's a testament to sort of we love it. We love brand, it. <laughs> brand awareness. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us. I'm will be at my first ultra marathon on Saturday, so I guess I'll see you Friday, a couple of days from now, or a couple of days. Looking from forward to it. looking forward to it, and uh, man, glad to have uh, let's run aboard the, the ultra world. Looking forward to having you guys and uh, enjoying the weekend.